Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the comic book movie podcast that is comfortably stuck in detail section of the podcast train. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. We will discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion on Bong Joon-ho's 2013 movie Snowpiercer. Six years old, this movie, you guys. It's it's insane. Uh, But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James this week, um, hopefully to explain something a little bit different. Uh, to me so guys i have been fascinated by the the kind of the response to game of thrones and i know you guys don't watch game of thrones but the the way that like the culture like at large seems to have gone oh my god this was a thing that we loved and loved and loved and you haven't stuck the landing so what i want to know is what's the closest parallel to that in comics (laughs) i'm this whole thing has actually made me think of something which is not a direct parallel in that it's not a sense of people not liking it and not sticking the land in. I'm sure there are comics that, that we can think of with that, but I would like to make one comparison, which is more, you know, the, the, the way that there's all this stuff about petitions to get it redone and the suggestion that possibly... Um, uh, like George R. R. Martin might be watching this reaction very closely and it may or may not feed into what he decides to do when he finishes the books. If, and if, Seb, if. <laughs> <laughs> but it has reminded me of a major instance of a comic book publisher changing what was going to happen <laughs> because of fan about. reaction. Although I don't even know if it was because of reaction or just because it got out and they wanted it to be a secret. Yeah, I I get the impression that it was more that because it got out. Yeah. So this is Armageddon 2001, which was DC's 1991 big summer crossover that happened in all of their annuals. Um, I love Armageddon 2001. It's like, it, it's as early 90s joyous DC as it gets for me. Um, because the premise was that a time traveller from the year 2001 comes back to 1991. And the reason why he comes back is that he lives in a dystopian fascist future because one of Earth's greatest superheroes basically turned bad and took it upon themselves to decide that that the world needed to be ruled by a dictator and became that dictator and put themselves in a suit of armour and called themselves a monarch. So this guy called... 
yeah it's, that it's, sounds great it's great so this guy called wave rider comes back from uh, the future um and basically he has this power where he can touch anybody and see their future so be, the way that the crossovers worked in those days was you'd have a you'd have a first issue that was like an issue of the series so it was Armageddon 2001 issue one that set up the story and then individual stories would take place in the annuals of all the various titles done by all of their regular creative teams so what this meant was that the annuals in the summer of 2001 was wave rider touching various dc characters and you got a glimpse into possible futures and the reason i say possible is that bear in mind that some of these characters have multiple titles being published at once and superman had three and batman had two so what happens in the superman ones is he sees a possible future for superman but then in one of the other ones he sees another future that isn't compatible with what's happened in the superman one so he goes and visits superman again and sees a completely different future and then he sees a completely different batman future again and then he sees a completely different superman future again now all three superman stories that were part of this are of varying degrees of great one of them's pretty good one of them's fairly good and one of them's fantastic um and there's various other across all the various other characters just having this fun glimpse into possible 10-year futures for them so anyway what happened as regard and then so what happened is you have all the annuals you'd, you'd have wave rider basically failing to find out who monarch was and then you get issue two which bookends it where monarch turns up in the present day and they have a big fight and you find out who monarch is um monarch was supposed to be captain atom as in the character that dr manhattan from watchmen was based on um and all of the clues in the first part seemingly point, even down to his power set, seemingly point to it being Captain Atom. Uh, but word of this leaked out in fan press, um, so everyone found out ahead of um, the issues coming out that it was supposed to be Captain Atom. So they changed it to be somebody else. And if you if you think it sounds good and you're going to give it a read one day, I won't tell you who it is. Uh, it's probably no, someone who's tells- quite... <laughs> tell us who it is go on okay, tell it, us who it, it is it's Hawk from Hawk and Dove um, <laughs> okay. and it was rubbish and it made no sense and it was absolute and the I, the very idea that Hank Hall could have become Monarch like they even have to comment within the story how stupid it is that that someone like him this lunk headed moron becomes this incredibly smart like capable despotic villain um, so I mean, they do some stuff with Captain Atom in the the bookending issue that kind of shows him possibly going down that route. But yeah, as I say, I mean, that's a very big tangent because I don't actually think it's what you were asking for. Um, Probably not, no. (laughs) But it's what this whole thing has reminded me of in terms of it's one of the examples that I've seen of a story that was planned a specific way actually being changed to go in a different direction because of external factors in terms of people finding it out. That sounds like right. They've changed it purely because they wanted to still have. Yeah, they wanted the it to still have a mystery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, because I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to think. Because obviously, like, um, I think the word "fan" has become a dirty word in the past. <laughs> yes. In the past world, well, certainly in the past couple of months, probably in the past couple of years, uh, you look at the way that, like, <laughs> yeah. What you mean uh, by being a fan of something is you're someone who hates it relentlessly for and think that it's not yes. good enough. No yeah. one hates something quite as much as the fans as something do. Yeah. yeah. Um but obviously it's it's interesting uh we we have had discussions off mic about the upcoming Sonic movie um, <laughs> which uh James and I thought looked really bad and Seb kind of likes but because I enjoyed that trailer. 
Seb is blind for anything that includes Jim Carrey. Um, and that, and <laughs> that includes, weirdly, his thoughts. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, I'm annoyed that you got there first, Seb. Um, <laughs> I've, but then, I've, I've but had that's... to get used to putting in that caveat in the last five years or so. But that's a film that has obviously said, okay, fan reaction, we are redesigning this character mm. before the movie comes out. Which seems like a, a not great precedent to set and also doesn't speak really that well towards you know the authorship of that movie and the, <laughs> the courage they have in their convictions etc etc um but then yeah, yeah i mean game of thrones has been fascinating because uh yes you have this you, you have this kind of shitty like oh we don't like this thing so you have to make it so we do like it not just i mean like I really like Game of Thrones, and I understand why it hurts for a lot of people. For me, the writing's been on the wall for four years, so I kind of felt like I'd, uh, I'd I can deal with this final season not being very good because it looks like it's been coming. But I can understand some people being upset that the thing that they love hasn't ended in a way that they found um, narratively satisfying or particularly well constructed. Uh, what I what I can't understand is people who go, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be something different. Therefore, it is bad. Remake it. Yeah, please. that's the that's, and that's, that's the way that the Last of... Jedi was reacted to yeah. as well. I think. Yeah, I mean that's that's like the prevalent, you know, online reaction to thing, isn't it? Like, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Therefore, it is bad. As opposed mm. to you know accepting things on their own terms like it happens a lot it happens primarily in the marvel universe or the marvel cinematic universe with like character <laughs> ships right i was just going to say i mean some might say that that's an issue that we had with uh, the end of end game as well um, <laughs> the pe- people were getting angry because of a version that they had built up in their heads not being the one that happened on screen and the flip side of that is we were very happy because it was exactly what we wanted. Well, yes. We, I mean, yeah, we, we come at that from a position, from a fortunate position of mm. we can be smug about it being exactly the ending we wanted. But, but Iron Man 3, um, right? That probably that probably feeds into this. Iron Man yes. 3 was not the movie that Iron Man fans at that point were expecting. A, a lot of yeah. people wanted um, the version of the Mandarin that the trailers had, had deliberately led them to believe that they were going to get before mm. the rug was pulled out. Um, Your story also said reminded me a lot of, um, I'm not sure whether this was ever confirmed, but in the build up to, do you remember the terrible, terrible movie Terminator Salvation, (laughs) i.e. the fourth Terminator movie? So there was like, there was was a leak online in the build up to that movie that it was going to be revealed Mm. that John Connor died and one, so the Christian Bale character died. Um, and I can't even remember. Was it was that the Sam Worthington one? That Sam Worthington was going to be... He was playing this... Um, he was playing a robot in the movie who would like take the place of John Connor. So it, basically yeah. the twist would be the John Connor we've always known, i.e. the ultimate leader of the rebellion. <laughs> was actually a Terminator. Was actually a Terminator, <laughs> yeah. Um, and... You actually, it actually sounded like, well, that's ballsy and, you know, risky and it would be interesting to see how they pull it off. Uh, it leaked online. Fans really, really, really hated it. And this, and that was, I think, still like in the era where Ain't It Cool News could actually impact <laughs> any nerd property <laughs> that was being made. Um, and the, the final movie did not feature that. <laughs> it just, <laughs> I can't remember whether he died. I think he might have done, but it was, uh, 
oh, it's a bad movie, and it probably didn't matter either way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will just, just, I mean, just to swerve a bit back to your original question as well. One, there is a comic that I can think of where the ending. It's not necessarily that it was bad as such but actually i think it probably does bear some parallels with game of thrones with game of thrones i've seen a mixture of people just saying that they think the episodes have been bad and others where it's it's disappointment in character development or you know characters following through on uh going in a certain direction and ex machina um the brian k vaughan series about the former superhero who becomes mayor of new york had an ending which it's not that it felt like a letdown because the character goes in a certain direction and it's not that it's actually if you go back over the series you can see that it does make sense for the character but you sort of don't want to believe it about that it could be a possibility for the character all the way through the run Mm. and when it gets there I felt when I got to the end of Ex Machina, it was a series that I'd really enjoyed as it was coming out. And then when it ended, it wasn't, as I said, I didn't read it thinking this is a bad ending, although the series had kind of slightly dipped in quality by the end. But I did feel like I don't really want to go back and reread this series because I know I won't feel as positively about the character or the series when I read it through again. And so I've read bits of it since, but I've never really gone back to it in full since it finished because just the ending left such a, a sour taste. And I say I don't think it was bad writing, um, but it did just, yeah, um, it, it made me realise that he was telling a different story all along from what I maybe thought he was actually telling. The thing that sprang to mind for me was Morning Glories, which everyone loved initially. <laughs> and as it slowly became more and more wrapped up in its own mythology, everyone went, I'm just going to quietly stop reading this. It's it's never actually finished. It's been on hiatus for a very long time, and I don't think <laughs> it will ever finish, which for a series whose entire premise hinged on what is going on here is a big Lost-style mystery, to never say, actually that reveal <laughs> that mystery... At least Lost, you did get the ending. <laughs> Morning Glories has never given you that actual ending and just became more and more incomprehensible. I think like, that's probably the difference, right? Comics, When comics go bad, they get quickly cancelled. Mm. Whereas when TV shows go bad, like, after seven series... Once you're in that... They're getting to the ending one way or the yeah. other. <laughs> Although I will say, I think uh, the one positive that has come out of this final season of Game of Thrones is... Um, the positive light it shines on the end of lost like <laughs> yeah you might not like the ending but uh, you know kind of at least we stayed true to character all the way through <laughs> how are you doing over there uh, game of thrones um one, one, and- one other one i will just say quickly as well because it is quite a high profile one i think more about contemporary reaction but preacher i think now if you look at preacher people see it as a whole and take it all as one but i do remember that when preacher got to its last kind of two or three major arcs a lot of people, there was a lot of chatter around this series has really gone off the boil. And the Salvation arc, which actually, again, I enjoy when I read it now, really did have a lot of people going, oh, Preacher's lost it. It's not going to stick the landing. I think generally the very end people were happy with, but the last kind of maybe year or so of it, I think people were disappointed with compared with what had come before. Mm. Um, I will say... Uh, because I've got the time, because there's not much news. Uh, just if if anyone is uh, a Game of Thrones watcher and in any way interested in my thoughts, I would say from, from what you were describing there, Seb, it sounds the closest to Ex Machina. Um, 
and I think the people who defend it will say that yes, this uh, the 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 point that the show got to had been foreshadowed heavily throughout the show and definitely in the books. Uh, but the debate that is raging is whether foreshadowing is equal to character development. Hmm. Um, and in a show that has completely lost its uh, lost touch with its own pacing, um, and I, and crucially for me, uh, a show that has um, fallen into its own trap of prioritizing shock over character development happening on on screen. Um, that's why the end of Game of Thrones has been bad. I think it's been bad. Um, we're, we're recording this on the night of the finale, so we haven't seen. Well, I, I haven't seen the finale yet. Um, and um, and on that lost point, uh, I would encourage anyone to go and Google what George R. R. Martin uh, wrote online when Lost finished, um, <laughs> because it was not very complimentary. <laughs> and um, <laughs> what goes around has certainly come around in that regard. <laughs> Uh, I I remain a lost stand to this day. Um, Okay, let's move on to the comic book movie and TV news. Um, And where else can we start but with our bats? Rob Bats. Okay, I was going to say, are we we going with our bats? Because I was thinking we could go with, like, Robat Patton's men. (laughs) Robat Patton's men, yeah. I, I like our bats because he was our pats for so long. It just it's it's too easy. <laughs> this just seems to be the thing now, isn't it? Having had Batfleck, it's like Batman the Batman actor has to have <laughs> has to have a Batman. Yeah, but they me. they didn't have to pick someone that was so easy. Like literally <laughs> his surname starts with Pat. <laughs> it's, wasn't 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 Batman's son an arc of Grant Morrison's Batman? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's talk about Robert Pattinson being reported, I don't think it's been confirmed yet, but reportedly cast as Batman in Matt Reeves's The Batman. Uh, so obviously this is well and truly moving on from the Ben Affleck era. Uh, we don't know whether this is going to be set in the same continuity in the DCEU, whether it's going to be a prequel, whether it's going to be its own thing. Um, <laughs> whether the DCEU such- has continuity anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well... Mm. I, I kind of I don't know. Yeah, they're still they are still referring to each other in the context of those movies. So yeah, it's got a Superman yeah. without a head. <laughs> yeah, it does. So some people online are angry because <laughs> you can leave it there. <laughs> yeah, uh, some people online remember Robert Pattinson as the actor who played Cedric Diggory in the in Harry Potter and then went on to play Edward Cullen in the Twilight franchise. And has um, done nothing else since. Yeah, and as if he's personally responsible for writing those movies. Done. Writing and marketing <laughs> Twilight, that's what he was responsible for, right? No, Nobody ever has a go at Anna Kendrick for having been in Twilight, do they? <laughs> and also, no. the, the Twilight movies were not this, like, just pocket of bad. The first Twilight movie is a perfectly decent teen, like, gothic romance. The second one's really bad. The third one's quite good. And the fourth and fifth one, like, the the two-part finale, have some genuinely interesting stuff in there. Like, as... Have you seen all of them? Yeah, multiple times. (laughs) I mean, I think the thing is, right, it it was a kind of gothic romance franchise aimed at girls and based on a really demonstrably bad book, right? The, so uh, the, the high-minded the movies, nerds have the movies have, are definitely better than the books. Yeah, well, that goes without saying because the, the prose in the books is barely functional, right? 
Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, but, you know, if people like to read it, fair enough. That doesn't really impact what the books, are, what the films are. Yeah. And so I would, but I would even make a, I would even make an argument that whilst his age probably wouldn't work there, that if you, if you time travel back to 2012 and at the end of the, the Twilight Saga, you say, could Robert Pattinson play a decent Batman? Okay. Yeah, probably. I mean, the dude is skinny, but he's tall and, I'm pretty sure that gyms exist, so I think <laughs> he will be fine there. Um, he's I mean, got a good, he's Z- got a Zachary good, good old chin. Just played Captain Marvel, Shazam. So you know, <laughs> the idea that someone has to be known for having exactly the right physique for that kind of character—surely we've way moved past that now. You know, he. Do, I mean, it's not physique is not the important thing for Batman, though, right? It is. Yeah. It's normally a chin, it's chin. and <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> and. Robert Pattinson has a good chin and cheekbones. I, I, so from yeah. that perspective, I don't know why. I don't know why it would be such a problem. And in I mean, terms I, I do of, kind of picture him in the mask as looking more like Val Kilmer than any other version, which you know may or may not be a positive. But yeah, I think he's you know he has got a his face has got a shape, and that's what you need for Batman. Yeah. The, Sorry, James. Go on. Yeah, the thing that sprang to my mind when this was announced was how. Maybe a week or two ago, um, Mark Commode, who is, if anyone's unfamiliar, the probably the UK's most respected film critic, was saying on, on his review show how much he likes Robert Pattinson because he thinks he's a really sort of complex and interesting actor. And if Mark Commode thinks that, I'm willing to give him a chance. Like, Kermode I'm not that familiar with Robert Pattinson. Kermode has been a long-time defender but... of Pattinson. So dating back to the Twilight movies, Kermode has been on board for... He was on board for that franchise and the performers. And to be honest, when you look at uh, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, what they've done since, <laughs> yeah, good he's, call. He's pretty right. <laughs> I this is the thing. The issue that I have with with the reaction, I I don't have. I have barely any feelings about Rob, Robert Pattinson as an actor at all because I've never seen any of the Twilight films, and I don't think I've seen anything else with him in apart from Goblet of Fire. I genuinely think that's the only <laughs> thing I've seen him in. And actually, I remember during Goblet of Fire thinking, oh, this guy plays the clean-cut hero posh type quite well. Like, I remember coming out of that, actually, he was one of the things I liked about that film. Um, it is still one of the better Potter films. It's not as good as the one before it, but I think it's probably better than than all the ones after it. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know that much about what he's done, but a lot of people have said that he has done lots of interesting and weird stuff ever since well, Twilight. And that's what the, bugs me that's the key thing. What, yeah, so if what, you look if you look at what he what his career could have been after Twilight, mm. it could have been, right, what franchise do I sign up to next? What what you know where do I make money the <laughs> Leading fastest? men in some crappy rom coms. Yeah. The rest and of people, people are some acting his... like he's only done Twilight and not all of that stuff since. I would say I don't have strong feelings about that stuff since. I don't know if personally if he's any good, but what bugs me are the people acting like he's just the guy from Twilight when he patently isn't. It was a while ago and he's done a lot since. I can imagine why if you'd followed him during the Twilight years you might think that because like you look at the movies he did during Twilight he made Remember Me which is a 
really horrible, insipid uh, rom-com that ties its ending into uh, 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Water for Elephants, which is horrible, um, and uh, Bell and Me, which is not much better. Uh, But then, then I can understand why people would think, well, that's it, because when was the last time he was in a huge movie? Instead, he goes off and decides... I'm going to work with interesting directors, and that seemed that seemed to start with um, with Cronenberg. So he did Cosmopolis, um, and then you look at the movies he's done since then. Um, he did The Rover with uh, ooh, Australian director David Michaud. Um, he did uh, Maps of the Stars. He's just done High Life, Lost City of Z, um, Good Time, which was which is on Netflix and was really highly trumpeted last year. Um, he's signed up to be the lead in the next Christopher Nolan movie. Um, so I can understand why, you know, nerds on the internet who are invested in the next Batman movie and probably not much beyond that think, well, that's, that's the actor that that guy is. Um, but... What an interesting career he's had over the last seven years. The thing is, even if you disregard that interesting career, my view on this kind of casting now would be, and and a lot of people have kind of made this point, I think we have had enough examples of it now. Uh, I mean, the, the one everyone points to is Heath Ledger, but it really does prove the point, which is that you just don't know what these are going to turn out like until they happen. And to my attitude now, or at least what I would try to have my attitude be towards casting is, there should only really be two reactions, which are either to get excited, if you have reason to be excited, or to just be kind of neutral and wait and see. So it's like we can still get excited and have preconceptions that are positive. Like, you know, when they go, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal's going to be playing Mysterio in the next Spider-Man, and that makes us all go, yes, fantastic, brilliant. But equally, if you're not sure how someone's going to turn out and you think, oh, you know, they're a they're a pretty boy, you know, or the, you know, they've done this, they've done that, I don't really think they're right for this. But it's not that often that they, the, the people who are responsible for casting these kind of films get it that wrong. And I think it's worth understanding that, you know, it could work out pretty well. The flip side is that when Ed Norton was announced as Bruce Banner, everyone went, yes, perfect. And <laughs> he turned in possibly, you know, the most boring version of that True. character yeah, I mean, that's the thing. film. It, 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 it can go either way. But I mean, but that's the thing is, that is a rare example of one not working because <laughs> generally they have done. Um, but I just think, yeah, it's sort of... Um, the other thing is, it's Batman. And I sort of... We must have I said it, before, right, anyone could be Batman. Yeah, as long as like you can do a passable Bruce Wayne, as soon as they put you in the suit, you will look like Batman. It, yeah, and it's I'm not sure, a problem. I'm sure we've said many times that there just there hasn't really been a definitive movie Batman. If there had, it would be more of a problem. If you, it's the same as when they eventually come to do a recast Captain America. That's going to be difficult, and that you probably will have to have preconceptions because you will always be going, "Well, come on, Chris Evans was perfect. How do you replace I'm, him?" It's I'm the Wolverine problem they've had with Superman. Yeah. And they've yeah and they, yeah obviously Iron Man will be a, I don't even think they'll bother trying to be honest they probably will <laughs> but you know Superman you know every Superman that's been cast has had to live in the shadow of Christopher Reeve now actually to be fair whatever your opinion on the films I think they've always cast Superman pretty well I think we've always got good Superman actors who fit the role well but with Batman yeah I th- I think the stage is still there for someone to unexpectedly be the best Batman we've seen do I think Robert Pattinson's going to be it. Probably not. Do I think he's going to be any worse than George Clooney or Val Kilmer? Probably not. Who was the last 
who was the last superhero that you that you think oh they got they got the casting wrong. It probably is Ed Norton. The, cast, the oh. casting was the problem there. Because, I mean, yeah. Well, actually, Ed, the casting wasn't really the issue. No, it was the, the film is more the It problem, was everything, yeah. but Norton yeah. was part of that problem. But I can't remember a movie in the past 10 years where I look at the lead actor or actress and mm. go, oh, you are the reason this we can, doesn't we, work. We can rag on Garfield Spider-Man, but he's, he's good at playing the version of Spider-Man that yeah, he's been given. Yeah, the performance, the performance is bad, but not because he's a bad actor. It's the, it's the no, choices no. that mm. were sort of made about the film that are the problem there. But that's but there's not... The, the, only, the only major piece of casting that feel like they've gone awry to that extent are... Well, it's Jared Leto in Suicide Squad. That's the only one that <laughs> yeah. I can feel, and that's and that was such a big swing. And this this relatively doesn't feel like a big swing to me. Like if if there's anything we've learned from it, it from looking at all the screen depictions of Batman, if when because I was thinking about this, and I get to be honest, I couldn't think of anyone at the time who actually fit this bill. Uh, other than probably Christian Bale, um, that kind of like I kind of trust that you can. You can make a decent Batman, right? Any, anyone, as long as they've got the chin, they can do the Batman side of it. So I want a Bruce Wayne who is is kind can kind of present as really boring and just like I am just a rich guy who doesn't have a lot going on in my head. Yeah. Uh, but that we as an audience know, oh, there is a there's a there's a weird streak inside you that you know what Michael Keaton has going in the eighty nine yeah. Batman and. That, that is Pattinson, him. <laughs> Pattinson feels like he ticks those boxes. Yeah. So that's like because I he think... he is kind of living that already. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the boring Twilight dude, but no, yeah, you haven't seen my weird movies. Yeah, um, yeah. So I I think good news on our bats. So we, are we willing to sign off on our bats as our as our nickname? Yeah, I think that's the most elegant one, isn't it? <laughs> um. Let's see what happens in the movie itself. So Matt Reeves is still attached. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is all quite speculative because there's a good chance this movie may not happen. Uh, well, a, this, a bigger this, one now. This seems to have kicked things movie. into gear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the rumors are um, that there there will be up to six villains featured in the movie, with Penguin and Catwoman being mentioned already. And I wonder whether that's just because they're they're two that you know it makes a nice headline that those two characters are resurfacing. Some kind um, of sinister six, you say. um but yeah we'll wait and see i imagine a lot more details are going to start coming out about that in the next few weeks um i want to move on now guys uh to a piece of news that um this had a seven james will explain this to me written all over it (laughs) paramount uh studios have inked a first look deal for an Atlas Comics cinematic universe. <laughs> so yeah. it may not surprise you that this was a topic of conversation uh in a in a WhatsApp group uh of ours recently because of someone we know saw a poster <laughs> and was wondering what the hell it was. So yeah. right uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't wasn't Atlas the company that eventually became Marvel? No. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> Atlas, Atlas became Marvel. This version of Atlas sort of grew out of the publisher of Marvel at the time uh, yeah. kept the name f- as his own asset. 
And so later in the 70s, set up another comics company, unconnected to Marvel, called Atlas. <laughs> so that's how you came to have two different versions of Atlas, one of which became Marvel, one of which became this company. And that's why which... I said no and James said yes, because it's yeah. true that Atlas became Marvel, but this Atlas did not become Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just want to read a bit from from the from this report. So... According to Variety, SP Media Group is in the process of acquiring acquiring a major stakes in the Atlas Comics library from Jason Goodman, grandson of Marvel Comics founder Martin Goodman. Uh, SP, SP Media Group has also signed a first look deal with Paramount Pictures. Financial details of the deal, which reportedly took several years to reach, were not disclosed. So, this media group is in the process of acquiring a stake in Atlas and have also signed a first look deal with paramount <laughs> mm-hmm. here's the here's the uh, uh, akiva goldsman <laughs> will oversee the writing room oh god the films will have a budget of approximately 60 million dollars to start okay interesting for a, for superhero movies um <laughs> lots of practical then, effects a quote from the sp media group president scott carroll we don't know yet what our flagship character will be. We aim to generate material that will attract top talent. And then and a quote from the Paramount Pictures COO. Intellectual property of this kind is hard to come by in this day and age. We are excited to be working with Stephen Paul and SP Media Group to bring the iconic Atlas comic book iconic, library to the right, big screen. Okay. Iconic. Yeah. Here's, here's a trivia question for you. Okay. <laughs> How many issues do you think the longest running series published by Atlas ran for? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to guess it's not many based on the way that you phrased this, Seb. Let's go for ooh, 15. Lower. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you are, you are wrong by a factor of three. <laughs> Shit. Four. Four issues is how many? The, com- the company was founded in 1974 and was gone in 1975. The longest running... A few series managed four issues. Most of them published one or two or three. Um, it did It did get revived around 2010, but again, not a lot of stuff actually came out. <laughs> so when Paramount Picture CEO Andrew Gumpert says intellectual property of this kind is hard to come by in this day and age... They mean that you, it really is hard to, it to really find... It really is hard to find... <laughs> as a reader... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, they did have something like 20, 20 or so, like 20, 25 original titles. I'm reading they, here they that span its heroes include Wolf, Iron Jaw, Son of Dracula, Brute, Texas Kid, and Dopey Duck. I mean, it would be really hard for someone to come up with ideas like this and, and that, that didn't involve buying someone else's IP, wouldn't it? Uh, what's going on? What's, why? why? What is happening here? I don't understand. What's happened is they've gone. Oh, here's some here's some cheap IP, sort of superhero adjacent. Let let's buy it up and see if we can do anything with it. And the answer is, you can't really do anything with it. I I think they've done it in like this in just purely to say that <laughs> to it's their based on comics. Hey, we've got our own superhero library now, like yeah. Marvel and DC. It's a bit like didn't 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 something like that happen with Cowboys and Aliens? Like it was a concept for a comic, but it had never been done as a comic. And then the comic only actually got made when the film was already in development, which gave them the yeah. opportunity to say it was based on a comic. Yeah, I mean that might that, not be the motivation, but it is what they did. 
Um, yeah, I, I kind of I see this a little bit more like Miller World when they've just gone <laughs> here. Here are a bunch of concepts that have been sort of trademarked and copyrighted by the fact that a comic came out with their mm. name and and character designs in. Let's spin but those into feels, movie scripts. That feels more substantial than this. And I I I, 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 I mean I can't remember exactly, but wasn't Miller World? Wasn't that Netflix? And that was mm. you know like TV shows and and. Oh yeah, Netflix like the, the difference movies. there was they actually bought the IP off Mark, and well, the whole company, in fact, that held the IP off Mark Miller. So they went, okay, here's a bunch of here's a bunch of ideas that we're now going to own. This is a weird sort of first look deal. Mm. So they've got a stake in it, but they haven't actually. They get a first refusal on these characters. Presumably, <laughs> they don't actually own them or anything. Do you know what? It, this makes me wonder whether Hollywood is looking with great interest in how the Valiant movies. This um, that is exactly where I was about to go. I was about to say the closest analog to this that I know of is the the Valiant Library, which is a bunch of sort of not even C list superhero concepts that have been turned into movies, sort of just because they were comics first that were vaguely popular in the past. Like, some of them could be good, some of them will probably come out and be bad. I well, I don't really think people are going to be that interested that they were comics first either way. Well, here's the, well, here's the question. Will they come out? So we know that the Vin Diesel <laughs> Bloodshot movie is happening, and I think they're planning a Harbinger movie as well. These are over at Sony. And if Sony hits with this, I think the lesson that Hollywood will probably take is comic book based set in a shared universe it doesn't matter that literally well that 99% of our audience had never heard of these characters or even this universe before because it's not like you know Guardians of the Galaxy you you stick Guardians of the Galaxy out into the established Marvel universe where, where Marvel is a brand in and of itself that gives that movie a platform to succeed there isn't any platform for Bloodshot other than it is a action movie starring Vin Diesel, and if and if the and if then the if the prospect of a shared universe and a comic book lineage helps sell audi- audiences on it, then I would imagine all sorts of nonsense will start to get greenlit. Yeah, I mean it. it it's funny actually because the movie we're about to talk about is sort of based <laughs> on an independent black and white comic, and when. When Turtles became a massive franchise in the early 90s, mm. a lot of movie makers suddenly went, oh, quickly go out there and find mm. me the next Turtles. And so we had things like Men in Black turning into films. Mm. And all the Dark like, Horse stuff, which we talked about before. But yeah, Turtles like, hitting around the same time as Batman 89 as well, which, you know, so mm-hmm. superheroes a thing. Oh, this weird indie comic has become a hit. Oh yeah, but like Turtles yeah. was so was so indie. It was like self-published, like yes, ultra yeah, yeah. low budget, and and that's what happened. Someone went, "Oh, Turtles was a hit. Let's go and find out what all these old like what all these solo sort of individual weirdo creators are making." Men in Black was one of them, and as we have seen from this year's upcoming slate, it's an idea that had legs. <laughs> I kind of I kind of wonder whether. It would be good for the movie industry for the Valiant movies not to take off. <laughs> it would certainly be good for audiences. Yeah. Because who's got I'm... the time? 
I mean, we've argued for a long time there's no such thing as superhero fatigue as long as the movies are different and interesting enough. Even I think there is a point. <laughs> See, my yeah. my feeling is that people aren't as interested in original superheroes as, as movie makers seem to think. Mm. Yeah, no. Like, there are very few exceptions. And, like, Kick-Ass was one, but that was a kind of satire. The Incredibles is one, but that had Pixar backing it. Big Hero yeah. 6, but that had D- uh, Disney backing it. You know, when was the last time an independent superhero that wasn't either a satire or, a, you know, connected to existing franchise had any sort of box office it's, appeal? Like, it's, Mystery it's Men? interesting, isn't it? Because the like, you look okay, you look at Iron Man, and okay, Iron Man was fairly known, but obviously, a, a sizable portion of the audience who went to see Iron Man, the fact that he was a Marvel hero was kind of meaningless it was you know he he could have just been anybody but there's just something about when you when you have the kind of the when you do have a character who does at least have that existing footing i think what you get is the people who know this stuff make enough noise about the fact that the character is supposed to be a big mm. deal that it at least then attracts the attention of the wider audience because you could say the same thing as, uh, about something like Shazam you know uh, it's sort of people the thing is that like the thing iron man had which for example, the Grim Ghost will not have, is that there's at least this sort of cultural memory of Iron Man in that mm. he had a 60s cartoon and he had a 90s cartoon. True, he did have a 90s If you say cartoon, Iron Man, actually. like yeah. people, you're not going in completely cold. Yeah. I, like, I, I, people I, I, know I think, he's Marvel and they mm. know that Marvel is Spider-Man. So that's, I think Guardians that legitimizes is the first this one idea. That just didn't have that cultural footprint, but by then it didn't matter because yeah, it was part of such a... it had the connection to Marvel. Yeah. Like, yeah. But to your original point, Seb, that that stuff does... The, the fact that people like you and James mm. know that Iron Man's a big deal, yeah. that, does, that seeps through to someone like that's me. What I mean. so, yeah, I, I, that's what I mean, yeah. That's what I think it, it we does... tell four friends. Exactly, or you know, our, our co-workers hear us talking about it or whatever, and they go, oh, okay, so is that, one, is that meant to be good then, or that kind of thing? Whereas, yeah, if we haven't heard of it, then they've got no chance. The end credit tag of the Avengers is case in point there. Who is that? We, they've not even said his name. It's just a big purple dude. Get outside the cinema. That's Thanos. That's Thanos, right? Okay, go home. <laughs> Who the fuck is Thanos? I need to yeah. read every Infinity Gauntlet. Infinity. Oh my god, that sounds yeah. exciting. <laughs> People like me to... writing up Who is Thanos articles for Den of Geek. Yeah. Cut to eight years later, um, and everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, my USP has been some severely devalued. <laughs> Anyway, um, I, I, the perfect segue here, talking about um, comic book properties not necessarily hitting with audiences uh, when they are, are kind of their own thing. The Tick is not being renewed by Amazon. Mm. Are you okay, Seb? No. No, I'm not. I'm really, really angry for all of the reasons that I said I would be when we talked about it. I didn't think the axe was going to fall quite so soon. <laughs> I was going to say, we, didn't, like, we hadn't yet. even put out the episodes. <laughs> I mean, from the sound of it, you know, there is a uh, there is optimism from some of the cast and crew that you know the idea they are still under contract to make it. It's not going to be on Amazon. They are actively shopping it round, and it sounds like Amazon aren't standing in the way of that, which mm. which can sometimes be a problem. Uh, because I know one day at a time, uh, the Netflix sitcom, um, I think CBS All Access wanted to pick that up, um, mm. and Netflix said no basically well, the, the um, marvel netflix shows as well are rumored to be you know forced off off the air for a minimum of three years by which point no one's going to mm. care yeah 
Um, but yeah, it, obviously, if if we never get any more of it, it is a shame. I'm glad we got what we we did get. Have you got any further into season two than you had before? Uh, a couple more episodes. But so, do you know what the problem is? It's a show that I don't want to half watch. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. because I watched it on my own and not with my wife, um, mm. my wife, um, I kind of, it has to be like the right time to watch yeah. the tick. Whereas some some stuff I'll just like let play out in the background. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, as I say, I, I feel I feel bad for all the people doing great work on it, and it seems like from the messages that people have posted, like it's it's so close to the hearts of um, the the people working on it that um, yeah. you know, I I, I want <laughs> I want to see them get to make more of it because they obviously have such a good time uh, making it, and and I want to see the results of that, but. Um, if we don't get any more, it, it was great. It was a lovely, you know, flash of lightning, um, and I, I will no doubt go back and, and rewatch it again in future. Um, but yeah, you know, fingers crossed that it gets picked up somewhere and somewhere where I can actually access it in the UK would be nice as well. My my worry with the tick is sometimes shows get cancelled and you go right well that would that would fit just as easily over at that other network or at that streaming service <sighs> off the off the top of my head i don't i mean the tick's not going to show up on one of the networks it's not going to show up on netflix hulu's doing its own superhero stuff mm. it I, I don't know like uh, unless one of the unless one of the cable <laughs> networks picks it up youtube red Hmm. It's it seems tough to me. Um, I mean, I hope that I hope that they figure it out because, as you say, Seb, it sounds like a lot of the people involved in the show are very passionate about it. Um, but I, I think ultimately for Amazon, I think they probably made this decision before season two started airing. Um, maybe if it had yeah. been a super smash hit but they didn't pump a lot of marketing spend no. behind it <laughs> they really it, ba- did not. <laughs> it barely showed up and and when you look at the the other shows that they've got on and you know Amazon Prime will be you know no, no matter how rich Jeff Bezos is Amazon Prime will have a marketing budget and it will carve it up and decide what it's going to spend it on and when you look at their slate are they going to spend it on the tick or are they maybe going to save it for a superhero movie, uh, a superhero TV show coming up later in the year? Um, I think the boys killed the tick. (laughs) I mean, that would be a bold start to that series. I mean, it is pretty much their mission statement. That is, that is what the boys are there to do. So (laughs) mission accomplished on that one. There Um, you go. So yeah, fingers crossed it does work out, but yeah. I I don't feel great for its prospects, unfortunately. No. But we'll always have those two seasons. Also, it seems to be just in the nature of the tick that yes. no version lasts very long, <laughs> but is really beloved by those who actually do catch it. Yeah, this is going to be a cult show for a long time. I'm sure at the very least, Griffin Newman is going to make a lot of money on the convention circuit. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Look, as as per his his, uh, I think the thing he's put back as a pin tweet. All he really wanted was to play a superhero one day, and yeah. and he's had that opportunity. So St- they've still not made an action figure out of him, though. Which <laughs> he'll get a Funko, surely. He's not. <laughs> they made the tick. They didn't make an Arthur. Br- brutal. <laughs> the, the, some someone will throw them enough money to do a convention exclusive. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Probably um, with hashtag Save the Tick on the box. Yes. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, so that was this week's comic book movie and news. Uh, ugh, comic book movie and TV news. Uh, we'll take a short break now where we'll listen to the trailer for Snowpiercer, a movie that came out six years ago, um, but has finally made its way to the UK. And um, yeah, we'll be back. T- we're diving into our spoiler filled discussion after that. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This chaos. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated my train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. Passengers, eternal order flow from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. Know your place. Keep your place. Those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. What do you say? We take the engine and we control the world. What is the time? Soon. This is disorder. 
We're going to the front. Open the gate. We know you well, Mr. Curtis. We've been watching you. Precisely 74% of you shall die. Okay, guys. Snowpiercer. Um, so this is um, Bong Joon Ho's 2013 movie starring uh, Chris Evans in Chris Evans in the lead, um, and is um, a big old metaphor of a movie. Shall we try and unpack that metaphor? <laughs> there is so much metaphor in this movie that is practically a meta five. Can I? Can... <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Can I? Can I actually just just ask a question up top? Because I mean, I'm intrigued to kind of see what other people's answers to this are. What did you think this film was before you saw it? Oh, exactly this. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you already yeah. know quite a lot about it then? Because I, I thought I, it I'm... was going to be like post-apocalyptic sci-fi in the vein, like action movie in the vein of The Raid, just set in a post-apocalyptic sci-fi world. I was not expecting what it was going to be. I'd read about it at the time, and basically, basically what I'd read was, this is a metaphor writ very large on a long train where the upper echelons of society are at the front and the lower echelons are at the back. I mean, I, I just thought all I really knew was that it was post-apocalyptic and it was on a train and it was like the last of humanity are on a train and Chris Evans is the hero and it's also got John Hurt and Ed Harris and Tilda Swinton in it. And with a name like Snowpiercer as well and the fact that it was based on a comic even though it was based on a French comic and even though it was a Korean film... I did not have the picture of this. I mean, people had said it was very good, but I still thought it was in the frames of it's very good for a kind of bog standardy post-apocalyptic action film. Um, yeah, so in the I same was... way, Train to Busan is very good for a zombie movie. <laughs> but I mean, director Bong is very—he's—he's he's really well. You know, he's very well respected. Yeah, but I didn't know this. Yeah, I didn't know right, anything okay. about who made this or what it was. So, so I, hands up here. I haven't seen the only the only Bong Joon Ho movies I've seen are Snowpiercer and Okja. Yeah, um, but I know particularly. Host, but... Yeah, Mem- Memories of Murder, The Host, and Mother in particular have very good reputations. Um, so I was expecting something accomplished, and I knew that it had. You know, like it was, it was showing up on top ten crit- critics' top ten of the year lists back in twenty thirteen. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I was expecting something year, good. Twenty thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it's crazy though, right? And we should talk um, before we start about the difficult battle that this movie had getting to the screen. Um, basically, in the US, it got um, it got bought by the Weinstein Company. Um, Harvey Weinstein has... Pre-cancellation. Yeah, but Harvey Weinstein always had a reputation for buying up these foreign films and then kind of chopping them to pieces and holding them back for years and years, Um, which I think, whether in retrospect or at the time, felt like a, look, this is what we can do to your movie if you don't agree to make the changes that we make. Um, In this... In this uh, event, Bong Joon-ho stood firm and said, look, no, you're not touching my movie. Um, either release it as it is or don't release it at all. And he got his way in the US. Um, well, didn't but it, they they trans like 
they changed the release, didn't they? It was going to be like a full release and they changed it to a limited release on the basis that if you don't let us make our changes, people won't understand it. So it only came out in a few cinemas as opposed to getting a full release like it was intended to originally. And then got a, a video-on-demand release very close to its cinema release as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think it, it, it had shown up on the festival circuit, and I, I'm not sure if it even played at the London Film Festival, maybe, uh, because there were definitely people in this country, maybe they were just critics who had seen it um, at foreign festivals, um, who were who were talking this up a lot. Um, but it just refused to get a release in the UK. And so six years passed and then eventually um it showed up on netflix uh a few weeks ago in the uk mm-hmm. which was which kind of out of nowhere as well no one seemed to know that it was showing up uh it makes sense because netflix um netflix <laughs> lots of uh, korean stuff on netflix. over here well lots of korean stuff but they released okja crucially right yeah uh, <laughs> and um and yeah so here it is and I'm alright thinking that you guys both absolutely loved it. Fucking yes. awesome. <laughs> I would say it's this like is probably film. it's probably one of my favourite films we've covered ever. I, I was I was I was thinking that it's probably I think it's probably the best film just like just objectively as a film that we've done since Ghost World. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, notwithstanding our strong feelings about things like Infinity War and, and that Yeah, like obviously I love Marvel movies and stuff, but that's that's tied up with love of character and love of of the form Mm. this is something else completely this is just like an amazing piece of cinema i i I know that obviously we've talked off mic about the fact that we're gonna often we try and do films chronologically and we don't always manage to and for obvious reasons we are going to try and go through this sequence by sequence but i will just say kind of quite specifically um there is a moment here when i suddenly realized what i was getting into as I went inside about, you know, I, I kind of had expectations about this film, about what it was going to be that were completely wrong. And initially, it's, it didn't feel like it was necessarily going away from those expectations. It, it was kind of, kind of what I expected of it. And then Tilda Swinton walks in. <laughs> and and it's not just what she's doing, which is incredible. I just absolutely, and we'll talk loads about her in this film. <laughs> it's also it's just the sudden shift in tone and mood, and the humour that it that comes in all of a sudden that I wasn't expecting. And just from that point on, I was like, I've no idea what this film is going to. Even though it should be an incredibly linear and straightforward narrative. And it, and it gets you to an end point that I think probably maybe is the end point that you would ultimately expect it to reach. But on the way, you're just you've just got no idea what it's going to do next. And and that moment when she first shows up, that first scene is just incredible. And just from I was enraptured from that point on. Even though I had to watch this film in a couple of sittings, but uh, for for just reasons of circumstance of why I was watching it, I was desperate to get back to it and watch the rest. For me, when when Tilda Swinton turned up, that it reminded me of Jake Gyllenhaal in Okja, because there's a there's a kind of similar dimension to that performance, which is that it's so huge and so idiosyncratic, and it just it feels completely out of place, and it made me go, okay, this is like, this is the same guy then, like it's clearly the same guy. Hmm. Um, so that, that's an interesting sort of different experience I had with that same moment. What I want to say before, before we start to go through the plot, um, 
I'm not going to be a spoil sport on this episode and go through like and be like checking you guys as we go along. But I didn't enjoy it as much as you two did. (laughs) Um, I still thought it was I still thought it was really good. Um, But I kind of had um, to a lesser extent than I did with Okja um, frustrations with the movie and frustrations with the movie on kind of its big thematic level. Um, because essentially this movie sets itself up as the train is a metaphor for society. And the train, once you look at it with any scrutiny, this isn't a thing that could function. There are are things within the internal logic (laughs) that don't really stand up once you get into it. Yeah, but it doesn't... Criticising that on any level, I think, is kind of missing the point entirely. It really, really doesn't matter because that's not what the film... The film isn't going like... Oh, can you really, do you really want to figure out the workings of this post-apocalyptic world that we've set up? It's like, no, there's a train, poor people at the back, rich people at the front. I've got yeah. it. I mean, it's a um, bit like looking at a Van Gogh and being like, some flowers don't look like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so th- no problem with any of that. But for a movie as a grand metaphor, and this is the problem I had with Okja. Okja, I go, right, okay, about... 10 minutes in I get right so you're telling me that eating meat is bad and the the way that our world kind of that the entire process of eating meat and what goes into that is bad and we are gonna hammer that point home by showing you the meat in its cutest form (laughs) and I got to the end of the movie and went yeah, eating meat is bad, and you've shown me that the whole way through, and I don't really feel... And and I know this is sacrilegious, because a load of people love that movie, um, but I didn't... It didn't It didn't hit me in the feels the way it did a lot of other people. Um, and I just kind of... I kind of wanted more. Like, okay, you've you told me what your theme is at the start. Where are you going with it? And for me, Okja doesn't go anywhere with it. And for me... Snowpiercer does that with Tilda Swinton at the start when she comes in and basically goes, this is the situation on this train. Know your place at the back. We're at the front. And Tilda Swinton, who is playing like a a, a very, like she is playing the politician. Again, we'll get into it. Um, but <laughs> when I get to the end of the movie and go, where did you take that theme? Other than society is kind of fucked, right? The way that society's set up, it's kind of fucked, right? And you get to the end of the movie and go, yeah, it's fucked. <laughs> um, and, and that's obviously, that's, that's you know, um, Bong Joon-ho wrote and directed this as he did with Roger. That's obviously the way he likes to tell his stories. It's not about delving deeper and deeper into that theme. It's about it's about reinfor- reinforcing the theme the whole way through. Yeah, I got a sense that it was like, reiterating and and reinforcing rather than attempting to solve in any way and i i agree in that sense like it, it's the same as oxygen and oxygen and it, it takes its idea and does it and doesn't yeah. necessarily present an alternative solution by the end of it it just mm. explores its its thought and i'm not saying that's bad i'm saying i think that that's not normally the way that i enjoy processing movies i normally like to be like in the first act go Okay, this is this is what you're setting up. This is the theme that you're going to explore, and I look forward to at the end of the movie once you have explored it, finding out what your grand statement is. Whereas 
director Bond goes, here you go. Here is my grand statement. <laughs> Have a think. And I am going to repeat that all the way through. And and in the process of doing so, do it with some incredible production design, some fantastic acting, um, some brilliant action sequences. Um, I'll keep you entertained the whole way. And that, for me, is why Snowpiercer, I enjoyed this more than Oxer, is, I think, the actual, uh, the meat in the middle, or the bugs, so to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit more enjoyable. Um, but do, do you guys, do you kind of agree with that from a from a thematic point of view? Because yeah, that's I mean, what it is, I, right? I can see what you mean. And it doesn't, it doesn't bother me in the same way that it, it necessarily bothers you because what i like about it is that it has it it has all these ideas that it sort of throws out there and for me that's that's what i find interesting is like when when movies say have a think about this have a think about this have a think about this and don't then tell me what to take away from it so on that level it really worked for me yeah yeah i i can see that Hey, should we start? Should we start going through the movie and actually tell our listeners, in case any of them haven't watched this on Netflix yet, what the hell Snowpiercer is about? Who wants to do the summary of the film? I do just want to say one more thing in a general sense about it because it's kind of to do with its relevance to this podcast as well. Aside from the fact that it is based on a comic, even though it's based on a comic that none of us had probably would have heard of or, or read beforehand, um, I think a bigger proportion of this ca- of the cast of this film have been in other comic book movies than haven't. Yes. It's yeah. amazing. People, just, even when you just get to people like Alice and Pill and you and Bremner and stuff, yeah. it's like you've all been in comic book movies. It's great. I mean, and Chris Evans, start right at the top, has been in a lot of comic book movies. I mean, this this made me want to go back and revisit that, working out those rankings of who has the most points if you multiply number of roles by number of films. And Chris Evans will definitely have overtaken Doug Jones by now. Because <laughs> in 2013 he was in second place, and I'm sure he will be top now. Yeah. Okay. So Snowpiercer. Um, Chris Evans plays uh, Curtis. He is stuck at the back of this train. Um, in the tail section of this train, uh, the train is the Snowpiercer. Um, global warming was happening, and the world set off these um, uh, set off these devices that were supposed to try and combat climate change um they failed and instead the entire world (laughs) froze and basically the only survivors from the entire world were the people that got onto this train um three tiers of passengers you've got first class economy class and then the freeloaders at the back uh, who make up the tail section uh so in the back you've got chris evans um you've got jamie bell octavia spencer john hurt and ewan bremner Oh, and and Luke uh, Pasqualano, I think the uh, who was in Skins. Mm. So they're kind of the um, they're kind of the, the 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 cast members that you need to know, other than a couple of kids um, who <laughs> who are in the back. Um, and the train is it's literally described in the opening sequence as the arc, as an arc, and I think there is supposed to be some religious imagery and uh, thematic stuff thrown in there as well. Um, but this is picking up 17 years after the, the after the, the kind of climate disaster. Um, 
and yeah, we we pick up with uh, with all of these guys in the back of the train, and they are planning um, a revolt. There I think. Been... Hang on, I think we we need to make the point. The train is running on an infinite loop around the yeah. world. Yes, where sorry, it yeah. takes it takes a full year to make uh, one. What's circumnavigate. Circumnavigation. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Of the uh, <laughs> of the globe. And it's running on this perpetual uh, perpetual energy engine that was designed by this guy called Wilford, who will uh, at the end of the movie discover is played by Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's Wilford, not Christoph. <laughs> Little reference there. I'll talk about it in more detail when we get to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Over our heads, obviously. Um, You'll kick yourself yeah, so when you realise what I was saying. <laughs> right. So the train is going round and round and round and the people in the tail section, they are basically like, they're all like uh, squeezed into tiny bunks. Um, They are kept in line by armed guards from further up the train. Uh, They get fed these protein bars, which are like these black jelly bricks. And that's all they get to eat. And it's basically like, this is as bad as it gets. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is this is this is poverty basically you are looking at poverty in um and it reminded me design wise um of the matrix i mean there's a lot about this film that reminds me of the matrix but uh, yeah, i think the, the ending as well right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the Matrix, and also um, John Hurt's character is called Gilliam. Yeah. Um, Terry Gilliam was another <laughs> like. I mean, when when his name is being repeated, it's difficult to get that out of your mind. But like, it has a it has a very it's very brilliant. Terry Gilliam vibe to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, visually, kind of Terry Gilliam, full stop. But Brazil in that kind of again, this kind of like slightly slightly almost like magical sci-fi that like like i was talking about don't bother too much to try and think about how this all actually functions well yeah like like the fact that it's based on metaphor and and allegory rather than Mm. like plot mechanics it's kind it's kind of it's kind of it's magical realism isn't it yeah kind of yeah yeah i mean not like an extreme example of it in the sense that you know there isn't sort of actual magic going on but there is yeah, unrealism I mean, going of, on in order to sort make of an needs, allegorical point the the genre sort of needs a name doesn't it because it's like magical sci-fi is what it is mm. like superficially it's explained by the fact that oh it's happening in in the future with advanced technology but actually you know when they walk from one room to the next they might as well be stepping through portals like there's no connective yeah. tissue there yeah because actually yeah because no I mean, ma- magical realism is usually kind of contemporary and sort of yeah i think you you right there needs to be a kind of adjacent genre that is magical realism but in the future with sci-fi conventions added but without the rigorous sort of this is this is the actual possibility that this is founded on that most good sci-fi has <laughs> you know it's yeah so I think we've. I think we kind of that. That's the setup, and I guess the 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 thing that sets things into motion is there. There have been revolts in the past, but Chris Evans is planning a new one. He is kind of like um, the kind of the wise old leader in the tail section is uh, played by John Hurt. He's the Gilliam character, um, and people keep saying to Chris Evans like, "You need to be a leader. You need to be a leader. When are you going to step up?" and 
whilst he is acting like a leader, he refuses to call himself that. Um, but he's planning this revolt, um, and a couple of things happen. Uh, one, I think the first one is just to kind of show you the brutality of this world and the way that the tail people are just completely disregarded. Um, someone comes looking for a violinist and there are a, there are a couple that, that live in the tail section who were violinists in their previous life and they want to go out together and the, uh, the armed guard doesn't let them go together. Instead, he kind of smashes the face of the man's wife and drags him off to his new life in the front where he will presumably be now just entertaining people with his violin skills. <laughs> and later we see that's what, yes. he, what he's actually doing. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the wife now has no husband, a broken face, and just has to go about living her same shitty old existence. Um, and then the second event is that um, all of the kids get rounded up and they get measured by this woman in a yellow coat. And then two of them are summarily taken off. Um, one of them is Ewan Bremner's child. He throws a shoe at this woman um, and her head starts bleeding. And so the guards grab him and they stick his arm out of this kind of like port porthole in the side of the train and leave it out for seven minutes where it kind of three it completely freezes and then they shatter it with a hammer. That's his punishment. <laughs> um so the kids are taken off. That is an important plot point. Um we get to see that the world outside is pretty inhospitable. That's the second point. Um but then upturns Tilda Swinton uh to deliver <laughs> and the to entire deliver tone the... of the film suddenly changes. <laughs> Where she delivers the um, the monologue that kind of that kind of establishes the metaphor and then kind of spurs on the revolt, I would say. And Seb, uh, this is this is where the movie uh, changed gears for you. Uh, you just yeah, because you just have you have Tilda Swinton turning up with this hair and these glasses and these incredible teeth. And this Yorkshire accent, which I just mm. did not expect. I mean, did you see what she based the performance on? Um, because she was quite deliberately trying to evoke, in her words, the yeah. sort of the conservative MPs of the 1980s. Yeah. As well, like the embodiment of pure evil, as she understood it. <laughs> well, there was another thing I saw, which is, I mean, she was sort of like combining, uh, what was it, sort of uh, a bit of Thatcher, Gaddafi, Hitler and Berlusconi. Uh, <laughs> I love that Thatcher gets in that list. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, but the I accent... Mean, Thatcher's actually, the main one though, right? Yeah. Thatcher is the main influence. Yeah, yeah. And the accent came from like somebody in her life who was like this horrible authority figure in her life. But it's just, mm-hmm. I mean, she's almost, she's almost a Victoria Wood character. It's Victoria Wood is exactly what I thought when yeah, I was looking at her. Because there's this, there's this slight bit of grotesqueness, but just in, just this real sort of, you know, she's giving this kind of earthiness in the performance. And it's just, it's so at odds with everything around her. Well, it's like um, it's the it's the sort of accuracy of the mannerisms and like yeah. the, the satirical bite of it just make you think of Victoria Wood. 
Yeah, and also just what she's saying is really funny because you know she's delivering this speech, which is designed to basically say to these people, "We are we are crushing you under our feet," and she's delivering this speech while Ewan Bremner is having his arm frozen off because yeah. that whole thing about you know we need seven minutes for it to freeze at this altitude, so the speech has to be seven minutes yeah. long, <laughs> and then she's going on about because she's had a shoe thrown at her, you know, she's going on about you're the shoe and we're the head, and it's just it's so it's so brilliantly comical and dark at the same time um as uh, i want to do it's, just it's not <laughs> it's not seven minutes long but i'd love to read that that quote because it is just it's just incredible and this and, and as i said this kind of like sums up the movie so um order is the barrier that holds back hang on, hang on. you're not, you're the not doing the accent joe yeah it's close it's close enough already <laughs> order is the barrier that holds back the flood of death We must all of us on this train of life remain in our allotted station. We must each of us occupy our preordained particular position. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. In the beginning, order was prescribed by your ticket. First class, economy, and freeloaders like you. Eternal order is prescribed by the sacred engine. All things flow from the sacred engine. All things in their place. All passengers in their section. All water flowing. All heat rising. Pays homage to the sacred engine, each in its own uh, particular preordained position. So it is. Now, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks the place of the head, the sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. (laughs) <laughs> Do they, there's, there's, a thing Spectacular. That, there's a thing that I'll say about that as well which actually relates to the fact that this is an English language film written by somebody whose first language is not English hmm. and it's there is some beautiful writing and idiom in this and there's stuff like that speech there's sort of there's there's other bits that's just kind of fairly hokey and, and formulaic and I, I like what it does with language with the stuff with the translation uh, thing of um uh the designer character whose name i've forgotten the security guy um but there's but there's a line um where it's john hurt's character it's early on and he describes himself as he says i'm a shadow of my former shadow yeah that's uh, that's such a good good line line. and for that to be written by somebody you know who's not writing in their first language (laughs) fantastic I do think there is uh, the, the one criticism I would give to the script here is that, like, he he says it all out loud. There are at <laughs> least two or three monologue bits of the movie where the movie goes, "Show don't tell's been thrown out of the window here. We're just gonna we're just gonna let the actors do their part." Mm-hmm. But like the two, I mean, the, the the three I would say are here with Tilda Swinton. Um, in the final act with Chris Evans, and then when Ed Harris comes on and is the architect, mm. like that, those are the, those are the three points where it does that. But and those are all like the the bits of the film where you're like solidly gripped. Yeah, maybe not for the Ed Harris for me, but the other two <laughs> definitely, definitely yes. Um, and you know when when your dialogue is strong, and your I mean, like as I said the thematic approach is very, very consistent. So, like, you know, it has a clear idea of what that dialogue wants to get across. And then the performances are smashing out of the park. 
fine, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Well, you get away with it, right? If, yeah. If it had been bad, it would have been more of a problem, but it's not. So uh, I, I should also point out that um, as well as you and Bremner having his arm out of the window at that point, he has also had the shoe placed on his head. <laughs> <laughs> it's a recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> you and Bremner going big in this movie. <laughs> Real big. Almost as big as Tilda Swinton. Chris Evans and Jamie Bell, pretty grounded by comparison. I mean, Jamie Bell is pushing it a bit with his accent. I think he's going yeah. he's going big with his accent in places. <laughs> That's sort of what makes the film turn around when Tilda Swinton turns up, is that everyone is broadly kind of keeping it real up until that point. Mm. And then she turns up like it's sort of this weird pantomime. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. It's a, do you know what it is a bit? It's a bit Hunger Games. Have you guys seen the Hunger Games movies? <laughs> no. Oh, right. Oh, no, like I, thought, it... I thought that was a joke when you were saying if it like so. No, I mean, Hunger Games was no. definitely one of my points of reference for this as yeah. well. Yeah. When Absolutely. Elizabeth Banks walks into yeah. the Hunger Games in the, in the first 20 minutes and you suddenly go, holy shit, I've just watched that. I mean, you know, they're, they're exploring similar themes. Um, the Hunger Games is trying to do it in a world that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's its problem. No, it's no, no. Right, hang on. In case this has never been said on this podcast before, Hunger Games quite good. All the Hunger Games films are fucking excellent and are some of the best blockbuster cinema of the last decade. I adore those films and those books. They're brilliant. Uh, I do. I, <laughs> I have no. I I have issue with the third book and the third and fourth movies. But I th- yes, I think there's valid issue that you can take with it. But on the whole, and the second book and film are. Chef kiss, yeah, spot on. <laughs> anyway, let's but yeah, stop no, I was, writing I was off young adult franchises. That's the lesson <laughs> from this episode. Um, okay, so basically, what happens from there is that they the revolt begins, um, and they kind of uh, figure out that the guards don't have bullets in their guns. That um, that moment actually was one of my oh, one of the points in the film where I was like. Ooh, this is this is actually like I'm really invested now. Like the bit where they realise, like, oh, she was she called the gu- the guns useless. Like they haven't got bullets. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out they're right. And as soon as they like charge and they're like, they've got no bullets. You're like, fuck yeah, they've got no bullets. Like, and when he puts the gun to his head and pulls the trigger. Yeah, like, exactly. That's Chris like, Evans doing a nice Chris Evans hero moment there. Yeah, the sh- yeah. Just, the shot where he pulls a... the trigger is real nice. Yeah. yeah. And like and that I, was that was the point where I know I was invested in the plot as much as anything. And spot yeah, because that is it. You are invested in the plot despite you know kind of just hand waving away the actual setup of this train not really making much sense. Yeah, well, early on, like as long as you accept that the the remnants of humanity could be running on this infinite train loop, there's nothing that is completely implausible aside from that one thing. And it's a bit like the Matrix in many regards, but in that regard. All you need to know about the Matrix is humans act as batteries and they live in a VR world. And as long as you buy into that, it makes sense, right? Mm. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I could say you could ask lots of questions about like where are they getting that food from and where are they, wh- how is that being gathered and where are people sleeping and oh yeah, but how... it, it's sort of slight enough. Like you see their bunks, yeah. you see them getting this food from somewhere, so you assume okay they've got the means of production at some point on the train, like, whatever that may be. Well, and it, it's sort of a lingering question is, at that point. If you if you were running, say, a YouTube account that pointed out errors in <laughs> movies, I'm sure that you could, like, have a field day ding, with this movie ding. not actually adding up. But 
my my point is that despite all of that, the actual plot is it's so easy to invest in. And it's such <laughs> yeah. a it's such a simple premise as well. Mm-hmm. The poor guys at the back of the train want to revolt and get to the front of the train so they can overhaul the current system yeah and really like she says as much in that speech the only reason this this film takes place on a train is because there's this sort of built-in class system and it's a big metaphor like the the comic obviously exists but if you read the comic because i i looked up the comic after seeing this film obviously um the comic is actually more themed around sort of ecology and and conservation and it's a big sort of early 80s like green movement thing there's nothing about class in the comic what that's interesting (laughs) yeah so clearly like the the basic setup has been taken and he's gone what are trains really trains are just a big metaphor for society because you have the first class expensive bit and you have the you know the chattel in the back and so that's where the the story for this film has come from as much as anything. It's like, what is a train really, if not a microcosm of society? And I do want to talk at this point because I think it's I think it's worthwhile framing all of this in the supposed twist that comes well, no, it is a twist that comes later in the movie, which is that this revolt was allowed to happen by the establishment of the train. And basically they planned for this revolt to reach a certain number of carriages forward, at which point it would be crushed. A lot of people would be executed by it in a means of population control and a kind of show of force to the, to the rest of the, to, you know, the rest of the people on the train. Um, but it got further than it was supposed to. So that moment, the start where Tilda Swinton says, Oh, you know, those useless contraptions. And Chris Evans reads from that, there are no bullets. And then John Hurt goes, <laughs> oh, interesting. Like, that's all. And John Hurt is revealed to, like, be a collaborator in in let, in let kind of inciting this revolt, but hopefully not letting it get too far. Um, so all of that is kind of... It's clever that Chris Evans, like, you go, oh, yeah, that's smart. Um, and then you get the added twist later on that, ah, oh, no, you would... <laughs> you were you were allowed to make that deduction. I mean, it is, it's certainly revealed. What I find interesting is that later on it's revealed that, A, there are bullets, so they could have had yes. more bullets, but they didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they were allowed to get that far. Yeah. Bullets, mm. yeah, bullets only show up when you need them. But also, on, on John Hurt specifically, did you catch the thing in the film that suggests maybe he wasn't as traitorous slash um, as much of a collaborator as, as was suggested? Uh, go on. No, so probably not. He, when he's talking to Curtis, he says, "Like, if you get to, um, what's the guy's name? Sorry, begins with W. Uh, Wilford. Yeah, yes. if you get to Wilford, he like cut out his tongue. Like, don't let him talk to you. But is that not mm. don't let him talk to you because otherwise you will find out that I was collaborating? <laughs> or is it don't let him talk to you because he's going to tell you like." Well done! You've reached the head of the train. You're in charge now. I uh, so I I believed that I believed that that Gilliam was collaborating. Um, oh, he was definitely collaborating. But the question is, to what extent was he collaborating? Like, I th- I think this is an ambiguity in the film that you can you can sort of wonder about, and that would make me wa- want to rewatch it actually. I mean, yeah, because it does involve you taking the bad guy completely at his word 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's that thing of they'll all if you're taking the sort of um, the the societal metaphor, um, the you know the the rich right wing will say people at the top will always want to make you believe that your yeah. uh, revolutionary heroes are not as much of a hero as you want to believe that they are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's why I that's why I wanted to talk about this now because I I, I believed in the context of the film that he had collaborated and I and I flicked back through the movie um, a second time on Netflix and kind of watched a couple of scenes again um, and, and and I thought it kind of it kind of stood to reason that that yeah he knew that, that it, it, I, I believed it basically. But on the metaphorical point of view, I'm not sure how that plays in. I'm not sure how how yeah one of one of your, you know, one of your fe- fellow people at the bottom of society, why they would be invested in keeping you down. Yeah, let's let's think. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. Okay. So I guess, like Seb says, there's this sort of. Okay, no, here, yeah, here's how I rationalised it yesterday, actually, is that John Hurt's main thing, Gilliam's main thing, is more that he he just wants to ensure the survival of humanity. Yeah. And he knows that if Curtis gets to the front, there'll be a good guy in charge, someone that he can trust. Like, I think that's that's where he was going with that, is that but he I... can, you know... If, ah, so if that, Curtis but that's is you, right the that's you, that's you rationalising Gilliam being a good guy, right? Well, yeah, that's why. Why? Why would Gillian be involved in this plot? It's because he knows someone has to run the train, and he thinks Curtis can do it. Yeah, because otherwise everyone dies, and he's not. So wrong. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And, and so, but what I'm saying is, as someone who thought that Gillian, like I, that, thought Ed Harris's explanation made sense. Mm-hmm. How does how does that fit in with the metaphorical? How does that fit in with the allegory? And and I I can't reconcile it now off the top of my head. Um, so maybe that's one to think about further. Yeah. If that's the way that you read the movie, because that's the way I did read it. But oh yeah, I'm not I, I so agree. Sure. I do read the movie as well in that in that way. So they make their way through the first uh, through the first car. Uh, they kind of create this big barricade which they like fly through, um, and they get through to the. So basically, I think the tail section is where they are right beyond them there are no more of the of the freeloading tailies mm-hmm. after mm. that you get to economy and it the, this the the back car felt almost like um it was a prison car right some people were caged up and some people were kept in like uh in in like morgue drawers almost well, it's weird isn't it because it's, it's obviously kind of like cryogenic storage but it, what's weird is there's no movie style yeah. when they open the drawers and there's no smoke or steam or whatever i, I um, don't think it was cryogenic. Dry I, think, I think it was just um like solitary confinement but is he like it's just these are drug addicts so we're shutting them in drawers yeah i just i took it to be though like how how would they otherwise survived though oh, i think um, they get taken out and fed well, that's. Uh, I mean, this is another point where I go. I don't. I'm not. But yeah, yeah. Mechanics. Good point. Who cares? Here, right? here are these people. So this is where we meet um, Song Kang Ho's character, who is uh, Namgung Minsu, um, and he um, had designed the security features on the train. So Chris Evans is taking him along with him, 
so he can unlock the doors as they go, basically. Um, there is also um, a character called Yona, played by Go Asung, uh, who is his 17-year-old daughter, and she comes along for the journey as well. Um, they are both addicted to something... Is, is it Chronol? Chronol, yeah. Chronol, um, which is described as industrial waste. Uh, it is mentioned very early on um, in a Chekhov's gun style that is highly flammable um, <laughs> and basically causes people to have like mild hallucinations. Um, and both, and you know, both of those characters are addicted to it. Um, and Nam is like, Nam doesn't, doesn't like Curtis and does not want to go along with the revolution. Yeah. He won't do anything them except for the drugs. For the drug, yeah. Yeah, because because Chris Evans has got his hands on this and is saying, I'll give you a cube every time you open a door, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, Negotiates him up to two cubes. <laughs> yes. So they get through to the next car. That car is an, em- an empty car, uh, but the implication being that everyone has been evacuated very quickly from it because there's still food on the table. And there's this incredible moment in there where suddenly there is this blinding light and they all like, shield their eyes. Yeah. And it's the first time that I think I kind of realised, oh, in the tail they don't have windows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's this gorgeous moment where everyone sees the outside world for the first time in 17 <laughs> And obviously years. because it's entirely frozen over, it's extremely bright. Yes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that because that's and I think um, it's uh, really really effective. I could be misremembering, but obviously you've, you've had the you've had the bit at the start that kind of sets up the framing of the world freezing. But I think the film is very deliberately. I don't think we've seen an external shot of the train before this. I could be wrong. I would, like, right at the start, I think. Re- right, right at the right, start. Right, because I remember it being quite a quite a thing of, you know, we, we're not looking at it from the outside. I think there's partly, I think there's a budget and an effects thing going on in terms of how little we actually see exterior shots yeah. of the train. But yeah. I, it does seem very deliberate that when the characters are getting this first glimpse of what the world really looks like out there, it's our kind of our first proper glimpse of it as well. I'll say, we, yeah. you know, we, we already do kind of know, but the first time we get an actual proper look at it, because is it that bit as well where they're going through London at that point, aren't they? I'm pretty sure it's fairly obviously London that they're passing through when you when you see outside like that. Although maybe it's not, because no, later on they're somewhere else completely different. They're in like in Asia, aren't they? So I could be wrong. It yeah. just really looked like a frozen London to me. But no, it can't be because of the time. So ignore me. That's nonsense. <laughs> I, d- I, d- I didn't notice, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so they make it through that car. Um, and there is, there's this implication that um, that Yona has like precognitive abilities because she seems to keep knowing what's <laughs> going to be at the, going to be waiting for them at the other side of the door as they go through. Mm. Um the next one, they find a guy who used to live in the tail with them, but is now build is now uh, working the machine that creates the protein cubes, and they get in there and like the the kind of most of them are like, oh my god, it's the protein stuff! Like we're really <laughs> hungry, let's eat a bunch of this. And then one of the guys and Chris Evans look inside the machine, and it's this horrifying vision of bugs being churned up into a pulp <laughs> to create these jelly blocks. You never I mean, really find oh, out where the cockroaches ecologically come sound, from. right? <laughs> the UN has been recommending we eat bugs for years. Mm. 
it's horrific. It's really horrific. And Chris Evans sells that. <laughs> quite how horrific it is. I mean, that's considering all what they've we learn about eating. him later. He's, yeah, he's clearly well, I think upset. that's <laughs> part of the point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's really fun. Can I? Can we just go back to? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up his name. Can we just go back to Namgoon quickly? Yep. I think it's very interesting that on you have these like two sides of the conflict, right? So you have the you have the like poor people in the tra- in the tail end. You have the rich people at the head. They're like one of them wants to to turn society upside down. The other one wants to break out. Uh, wants to keep it how it is. The guy in the middle, who who we later realise has a completely different plan for the train is the one who speaks a completely different language. And he's the only person in the film, him and his daughter, are the only ones who speak fully Korean, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's sort of interesting on that level, like on the allegorical level, he's literally speaking a different language from everyone else because he's got different (laughs) ideas that are outside the sort of the box of we have to stay in this train. Uh, that mm. just reminds me quickly, James, just on a technical point, but this is something I was wondering. When you watched the film, did you watch it with subtitles on all the way through? Yes. Or, uh, okay, because I know that Netflix can have this thing where, like, the issue with this was I watched it with subtitles on all the way through um, to make sure I was catching stuff. Um, but I wonder if, if you didn't watch it with with captions on all the way through, did their dialogue get subtitled on Netflix or no? Because no, Netflix can be an absolute no. bugger for that. But then no, it's like, were, is that the bits... intent of the film? Like, if you'd seen it in a cinema, would the cinema, I assume the cinema would have subtitled their dialogue. <laughs> the thing is, right, it, no, no, so I think it only subtitles their dialogue if you're supposed to understand it. Like, there are times when they speak and there are subtitles. There are times when they speak and there aren't subtitles. Yeah, there are times when the subtitles will say, speaking in Korean, and it won't yeah. tell you what they're saying. But late on in the film, when they're having the conversation about the explosive and the the doors and the wires, mm-hmm. they're not using the translator. Netflix did subtitle it because I had subtitles on for all yeah. the dialogue. But the thing is, he, but he if someone was using... watching that without subtitles on, you might not know what they were saying at that point. No, the thing is, he starts using the he starts using the translator, right? And then it just cuts to him talking and he's just speaking. So my reading of that scene is it's going through the translator, but they're just cutting it out for mm. for clarity's sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched it without the without the closed captioning on and uh they don't hmm. they don't uh show the subtitles for anything that he's saying. But there wasn't I when I went back and rewatched little bits of it, I watched a couple of those scenes with, with the with the subtitles on. Um I said that's interesting. So that big everything that big speech, everything that you assume. That big speech at the end where he's telling you what the what the chronal is and stuff, was that not subtitled? No. Wow. Not on Netflix. <laughs> that's interesting, right? Because there's a lot of like I read a lot of online discussion about the film and there are times there are a lot of people who come in and say, Oh my version didn't have subtitles, I don't know what he was saying. Mm. And I assumed it was because they'd just pirated it and got a version without subtitles. <laughs> no, they weren't there. But I, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a huge amount in this that I I didn't feel like I was able to infer through the performances. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's not it's not like there's a huge amount there either. But 
Fair. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad, I was glad when I went back and you know, kind of clarified a few of the a few of the speeches. This, this, he basically has one one long speech, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, hang on. So you so did you not get the stuff about the plane? Uh, no, not not until again. But again, the way that the camera communicates that. <laughs> You understood that what he was saying was, "I've seen ice melting." <laughs> yes, yeah, I understood. I understood. He's pointing out the plane. He's pointing to the door. Chris Evans is saying, "What do you want to go out there for?" Uh, and then he's saying, "He's saying, I- well, this. Remember when we looked out earlier? This is something that I looked at." And I'm like, "Right, okay. Well, he wants. Okay, I'm going to assume that he thinks that things are getting better out there. I mean, it's a it's I might have to go jump that you have that to make without the subtitles just to see how it affects my reading of it." <laughs> but it it might very well be that this is a Netflix problem and that that was subtitled when it yeah, came out. No, I'm sure it probably. I'd say yeah. And if you got it on DVD or if you'd seen it in a, seen it in a cinema, I would imagine that stuff that you needed to know was subtitled. Stuff that was said by the translator wasn't, and stuff that wasn't said by the translator but that you didn't need to know wasn't. Yeah, just speaks in Korean. Um, but it is an annoying thing with Netflix, and I've seen it do it with other things where if a film is partially subtitled like this. Unless you've got subtitles on for everything, it mm. won't show the stuff that you actually need. And that, to me, that's like with when it cuts off credit sequences, that's Netflix actually <laughs> removing part of the creative decisions made by the film or the TV show. Yep. And I don't like that. That's bad behaviour from Netflix. Yeah, we, we had a uh, we had trouble with the um, Anna Faris Overboard remake a couple of weeks ago where I still I'm I'm going to assume that it should have had subtitles on but it never did. Um <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the train. So, next door opens and this is one of these like bravura uh, sequences that the movie has. There are basically all of these guys in black masks holding uh axes who are there waiting for them basically. And they get attacked um and then the train hits a tunnel and that's when they're really fucked because all of these guys have night vision and they don't. Uh, but then they light, they kind of light their own weapons on fire. So you have this sequence that goes from just a big fight in a train to a night vision fight to a like flame lit fight in a, in a dark train carriage. Um, and it's, it looks incredible. This was, this was actually the first sequence where I was like, I don't think this film is supposed to make sense because yeah. the first thing that happens, they go through, they see all these guys in balaclavas with, you know, axes and, and machetes and stuff. And one of them takes out like a giant, like obviously fresh fish. Yep. And guts it in front of them. <laughs> yep. And, and then they celebrate the new year, right? <laughs> yeah. Midway through the fight, they all stop to celebrate the new year. I really like point, that, that point, actually. Chris Evans <laughs> slips on the fish mm. and, like, falls over. And I was, like, watching this sequence going, like, this is nuts. And I was like, ah, I think it might might be intentionally nuts. I think there was an element, and I genuinely think that the, the whole thing about celebrating the new year partway through may or may not have been a, an intentional echo of the apocryphal First World War football match to celebrate Christmas, the way you know stopping the First World War to celebrate Christmas. What I what I feel like it was doing was because the because at that point the people who they're fighting are they're not like 
they're not soldiers, are they? They're not like the they're not the military of no, the whole. They're, they're like um, they're re- and they're economy passengers, militia, right? Yeah, and they're, yeah. they're from the middle. They're not from the front, and they're not from the government, essentially. Um, and what that seemed to be saying to me was that like this fight is happening because it has to. And the people who are fighting have got to fight, but they don't necessarily especially want to fight. And that's why you can kind of have these moments where they almost have like sporting moments of like stopping or of, you know, like acknowledging each other and acknowledging each other as human, I think. Um, it's it's that sort of, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you know, that it. It, it was making actually these brutal thugs with axes and pipes and stuff not just be evil bad guys, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, th- I think what I took away from it was less the kind of sporting sort of idea and more just like. At the time, I was just watching it going, like, what the hell? Like, this is interesting. But looking back on it, well, looking back it doesn't on it, it really makes sense like, that any of them survive it, right? Well, quite, yeah. <laughs> But looking it's back a- on it, I was more like, oh, so actually it was more like saying, you know, society will always acknowledge these big things, even in the midst of like insane turmoil. You know, we'll always break for New Year, we'll always break for Christmas. Mm. And it was just that sort of thing, like, just because society is being upturned, some of the basic things stay in place. But like that's what I mean about this this film being sort of really rich thematically is that you can you can read the symbolism of that moment in many different ways, and you could write essays about what it meant and how it feeds back into the central metaphor of of what the film is saying. And then on the flip side of that, just from a simple plot mechanic point of view, this is supposed to be where it ends, right? They're not mm. supposed to get any further than yeah. this. Yeah, I mean that the other thing is that that scene delivers this piece of information to you, which is that like you get one circumnavigation a year and it's on a loop. Like, I don't think you learn that until this point. Mm. Um, this, this is, and this is another point where I kind of, I, I kind of, I, where I read it is if this was where the revolution was supposed to stop, Basically, Curtis, the Chris Evans character, makes a choice in this scene. He, his mate is, uh, the the Jerry Bell character, is captured. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has a choice, basically, of, I can try and save my friend's life. Well, I I mean, the guy is kind of holding him ransom, right? He's like, like, he's he's saying, like, if you you stop pursuing uh, Tilda Swinton... I will. I won't kill your friend. But if you go after Tilda Swinton, he's dead. And Chris Evans makes the decision that you know the the cause is more important. Um, but again, given the information that's revealed later in the movie about Chris Evans's relationship to the Jamie Bell character and <laughs> the his, the history with him and John Hurt's character. Uh, those kind of three characters together that maybe Gilliam would have thought that the decision he would make there would be to save his friends rather than mm-hmm. rather than carry on. And you what do, he you underestimated was how determined Chris Evans would be to overturn the system. The only thing there, though, is that that takes place after the unknown element that um, 
Wilford talks about. So that that happens after they've come in with the torch. Like the 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 way that mm. they were supposed to lose during the yeah. the, the revolution was, was the they night, go in the tunnel vision, yeah. and they can't see, and it's yeah. the torch yeah. that's the unknown element. And because this he happens says after he says that. later on, like, oh, we weren't expecting that. Yeah. So did did Wilford know about the torch? No, sorry, did um, did Gilliam know about the torch? I don't think so. Not because yeah, the the implication they get the is cigarette, they get the uh, they matches get the, off the guy, don't they? Exactly, they get the matches off. Um, yeah, now yeah, so. Yeah, they wouldn't have planned for Nam having the matches on him and thus them being able to get torches. Yeah. So they plough on past there and this is where you feel like you're getting you're getting closer to the the higher echelons, right? That that this is maybe Yeah, suddenly it goes a bit aristocratic. Mm. So you go they go through the water supply car to begin with because oh, I've just I've written down all the cars they go through, guys. So, you know, <laughs> so the water supply car where they all shower off and clean the, the blood off them. <laughs> don't you don't have to you don't have to uh, keep them with the the bloody makeup on all the way. The <laughs> yeah, <minute. laughs> when when they showered, I was like, for continuity reasons, have a shower now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they rest up for the night, and um, Curtis and Gilliam have a nice little chat there as well. Um, and then they go through. Is it when do, is this when they leave? This is when they leave the rest of the tail section behind, right? Yeah, they and say kind let's, of, just, kind of say let's like, just the six main characters go on or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So who? So it's Octavia Spencer, Ewan Bremner, Chris Evans, uh, Kang Ho Song, Koa Sung, and um, and and with Tilda Swinton in tow. So yeah, then they go through this like gorgeous uh, car filled with orange trees where like the 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 richer passenger just are just sat there kind of relaxing in this in this greenery and again you're like this must be the first greenery that these that these characters have seen um in 17 years uh then they go through an aquarium car and they um they are served fresh sushi see um, this they- again this is the point of the film where i was going like i don't think we're supposed to take a lot of this at face value no <laughs> It was like they go through the sushi bar, through the aquarium, into the school, and I was like, "Okay, I see what this film is doing." I will like, say, right, I, I, it's worth saying, right? If you want to take it at face value, you absolutely can up until about this point. At which point, if you are taking it at face value, you have to make a lot of leaps. I mean, it, it, I, I feel like I'd made a lot of leaps already, James. But I, I know what you're saying. Like, once you go through the aquarium car, you're like. Right. Okay. How is this? How is this working exactly? Yeah. I mean, um, I think there are questions that could potentially have answers up until this point. It's only once they get sort of to the aquarium and the school stuff that that just any sense of reality breaks down. And I, I think what I'd like to reiterate is from a from a production design point of view that you go through all these cars that, as you said earlier, it's like it's like almost stepping through portals that you're going into these. Every car feels like where are we going this is why i wanted to list them like where are we going next what are we going to see and it all feels especially when you're back in the tail section it all feels incredibly claustrophobic but the one thing it feels like the movie never cheats on is the width of the train yeah (laughs) it always kind of feels kind of consistent and so so everything feels claustrophobic and constrained and everything feels like it has this very definite forward momentum that you you know you go from here to here and then you're in the next then you're in the next car mm-hmm. but 
from a filmmaking point of view, it never feels constrained. It never feels like, oh, you're missing out on... It never feels like, oh, because it's set on a train, the director isn't able to show you the shots that he wants to. Mm. Um, and that that was the thing, I think, that impressed me most consistently about this, that here is a film that feels incredibly claustrophobic, but doesn't come across as that from a filmmaking perspective. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to think back to Source Code now, which is a film <laughs> that also spends a lot of time in a train. Jake's on the train. Jake's on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I must have stolen that from Empire or something. Like that. <laughs> that's that's got a witty subheading written all over it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the one that I was the one that I wrote for Empire once that I was most proud of was um, do you remember Iron Sky, which was the movie about Nazis on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I gave it the witty subheading of Third Reich from the Sun, and I was very, <laughs> very pleased with myself. <laughs> um, so we get to uh, the next car. We get to is again one of these standout sequences. This is the um, the school car uh, with a primary school teacher uh, played by Alison Pill, and we get it's like a, a demented uh, Stepford wife sort of teacher. Yeah, like properly, it, like. <sighs> Like waspy conservative American, yeah, yeah, I, indoctrinating I really liked, the children. I really liked that scene. I really yeah, this this whole character. sequence is one of my favourites. I think, mm. and that young girl who like just spits out this like yeah. because people <laughs> because people were stupid. Yeah, they didn't the respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, in the way that you kind of you do see, you know, you'll you'll hear like kids of people with extreme views. <laughs> Yeah, just parrot them back those without views. really understanding them, yeah. Yeah, uh, that that kind of dispassionate, unfeeling, like, fuck the lower members of society, if only they'd worked harder. You know, mm-hmm. do, do, what, have you, you've, we, and in this movie we know, you've literally never seen or met them, you've never interacted <laughs> yeah. with them. Mm. How you, can you, you know what their situation is like? Yeah, um... And so I thought that I thought this sequence was powerful from that perspective. Uh, again, the design of the car is amazing. The videos that they're watching, um, <laughs> and the song that they all sing until the Swinton's like, "Oh, this is a good one. This is one of my favourites." Uh, it's really, really great. And then, bizarrely, <laughs> like just to describe these events, some. Uh, um, a tall, weird, bald guy um, who apparently played Caliban in one of the um, X-Men movies, so that should <laughs> give you an idea. Um, tall, I knew weird, I'd bald guy walks through where. the car, um, handing out boiled eggs to all of the children and the teachers, and everyone gets given one. Chris Evans gets given one. Octavia Spencer gets given one, and she uh, and she cracks hers on the head of the shitty little girl, which I quite enjoyed. Um, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And Chris Evans has like his. We haven't talked about this. His has a little note in it. It's these like little silver bullets that have uh, like a red scroll inside that have like single words written on them, um, which are supposedly. I like. I, who does he think they're coming from at the start not, of the movie? Does he know it? I, I don't think he knows. Does he? He just he assumes there's an ally somewhere up front who's feeding mm. the information to him. That's all I remember. I may have missed the line explaining it or something. Yeah. As far as I know, he doesn't know who's telling him. He just is following the, you know, following the clues because he assumes they're from an ally. 
So it, this will later be revealed to be it was Wilford mm. all along. And early in the film, that makes sense because he, if if what he says at the end of the film is believed, he and Gilliam have been planning that this revolt is going to start and it's going to get so far and he's going to use it as a means of controlling the population of the people in the tale um, and also as kind of like a piece of propaganda. Um, but then once Chris Evans gets a certain distance, the implication I got was that actually once he's got that far, Wilford wants him to get to the front. Mm-hmm. He wants to be able to deliver his manifesto and he wants to be able to pitch him on this I, this position that he's got for him. Yeah. So that, that's the way you guys read it as well. Yeah, definitely. So the boiled eggs get handed out. Alison Pill takes a big basket of boiled eggs, um, <laughs> except hidden under the boiled eggs are machine guns. So this is, again, just like brilliant twist that we... And the the Caliban guy says says it doesn't he like the the he carries on down the train and finds the rest of the people in the uh, the tail section guys who are in the water car and says and they go oh eggs we thought chickens were in- extinct and he goes yeah it's like another thing that you thought were extinct bullets, bullets. <laughs> and then cue him shooting the shit I, I think he's shooting around them at that point rather than indiscriminately murdering them all because that comes later uh, but. Alison Pill's not messing about. She puts one between you and Bremner's eyes. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, the kids just disappear, right? They all dive Do under the... their tables, don't they? Right. Although that doesn't take I, uh... them for long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they they kind of, they shoot at all of the tail guys. We forgot to mention, they... Alison Pill is extremely pregnant. Is she? Yeah. Did I just miss that? Yeah, I, I she's extremely pregnant. And I just, I'm just used to women around me being extremely pregnant at the <laughs> <Yeah>. moment. <laughs> but what happens here in light of that is substantially more grim because of it. Yeah, she dies. Yeah, she dies quite violently. Mm. And this is the point where Curtis goes, right, fuck this. I'm not messing around anymore and kills Tilda Swinton as well. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of been dragged along in tow by that uh, to this point. When they're having sushi, she gets force-fed the, um, the protein bars. <laughs> she takes such a massive bite in that scene as well. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, no, you eat the protein. And she like she uses her giant fake teeth. Yes, that she's pulled out bite. earlier. <laughs> uh, at that point in the film, I was so annoyed that we had had the last of Tilda Swinton in it. When you get to the end you can see why narratively she does kind of need to be off the board before (laughs) everything that then follows. Cause it's like, she's just not going to fit in any of the remaining scenes, Yeah, but it was still really disappointing that it was like, Oh, that's it. I mean, the film generally does a really good job of killing off characters earlier than you expect them to. Mm -hmm. First with Jamie Bell, then with John Hurt, then with Tilda Swinton, but it's still a bit, Oh, is that the last we've got now? (laughs) Yeah, is this is this when John Hurt dies? Yeah, this is when John Hurt dies, right? Because they show it on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, I I love Tilda Swinton as kind of like I, I know we talked about all of those characters that inspired her, but as if you if you take the Thatcher parallel as and what you've got there is basically as the politician on the train, as the mouthpiece who kind of. So the people in the back talks down to them and kind of tells them, like, look, accept your lot. This is what you've got. Just carry on and deal with it. And 
really what she is on this train is a mouthpiece for Wilford. And so you again you extrapolate that that metaphor. The politician is the mouthpiece for the richest, mm-hmm. most powerful people in society. They're just in, they are just enforcing the thing that protects them. I mean, let's let's not get into a conversation about Thatcher, but I, I would not apply that to Thatcher, to be honest. But no, but the, to to the politician, uh, to politicians in general, yes. But I I, w- I would not. Um, agree with any argument that says that Thatcher was a, a non-evil mouthpiece for people more evil than her. Uh. Oh no, I wasn't I'm not saying she's I'm not saying she's a non-evil mouthpiece. I'm saying that she is the she is the person who is standing standing up front and being present and visible and executing the stuff and that stuff and and what she is doing is benefiting the already richer and more powerful people in society. That's 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 what I thought that he was going for anyway. I mean, that's what he's going for with that character. Yeah, I'm just saying that mm. I don't think that applies to Margaret Thatcher. But... <laughs> <laughs> Who I had lots of evil ideas of her own, is what you're saying. Yes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, so after the school car, uh, they go through kind of like a... Like a a weird kind of all-purpose car. It seems like it has sleeping quarters. It's almost like it almost looks like something you know from the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a dentist and a tailor's. Um, they then go through um, <laughs> the professions a... of the middle classes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this this bit was again. This is like this is like when they finally get into the capital in the Hunger Games. Films. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Let's let's look at all their lovely stuff. Yeah. Um, they go through like a, a fancy bar which has um. Which they they then go up a staircase onto like an upper level of this car. Um, again, previous cars didn't feel like they could have accommodated an upper level, <laughs> um, but here here they do, and I think you just accept it. Um, this has a hair salon upstairs. They then go through um, a, a car which is like it's got like little pools to the side, and all of the sides are glass, <laughs> yeah. and that is when evil henchman guy who they first came up against when they fought the masked guys who managed to survive that onslaught is now pursuing them from from back in the tail section of the train now that they've regained control of of the tail um this character's a bit shit right yeah <laughs> it's kind of it's surprising to me that he's the one who lasts. Yeah. Because he doesn't have an interesting visual hook and he doesn't have an interesting personality hook. He doesn't say anything. Yeah. Is that maybe the point? Like I don't know. I I agree with you both. I'm just I'm thinking in a film where everything seems extremely deliberate. Mm. It may, it may be a mistake to think that this guy is sort of an originality and lack of memorable features is a mistake i'm willing to i'm willing to go like right i'm gonna i really want to delve down into the metaphor here and what it means when it's when i'm engaged with or interested in the actual plot of the story that's been told so is gilliam a collaborator or not I will then. I'm then happy to drill down onto the metaphorical level and try and figure that out of what the film's trying to say. With this guy, 
Yeah, it's, <laughs> there's not a lot. He's there. boring, and un- it like it, there's nothing interesting about him from a plot mechanic point of view, and that kind of makes me go, I don't care then. I mean, there's so there's so little to hang off him in terms of the metaphor as well. Like I, you you have to assume there was a deliberate reason to have chosen him, but if there is, it sort of eludes me at this point. It's like I've I, I've I remember uh, there's. And I buy this argument that there are, uh, to go on a tangent, there are some very interesting things going on below the surface in Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. Um, <laughs> I just I just find the surface of that movie so crushingly uninteresting <laughs> that every time I go to that movie and go like, well, shit, could I delve a bit deep? I just don't. I just don't because of like, like, you've got to engage me with what's going on What's right going on under the masturbatory fantasies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and everything that's going on underneath could be a comment on that. Um, but I don't have the energy to explore it when I am so deeply uninterested by the stuff that you're actually doing on, on the surface. So that's how I feel about this guy. But what we do get is a kind of a cool sequence where the train's going around a bend yeah. <laughs> and him and Chris Evans are trying to shoot each other through the glass. I love the train's long enough for that. <laughs> It's, it's long enough for that, the, but he can catch the, them up on the train within in, seconds. <laughs> in the comic, it's one thousand and one carriages long. Hmm. It's, right, stated it's definitely to be that not. Long. I mean, I sort of this. feel like we don't see every carriage they go through in this in this journey, maybe. Mm. But again, like trying to trying to figure out the physical reality of this train is is putting you on a path of Bong Joon Ho's not interested because he wants you in that scene to go oh it's long enough that this can happen yeah but it's also short enough but by the time they're in the very next car that guy can have caught up with them yeah see again when I saw this discussed online there were people going like oh this is stupid like if you had those two guns you wouldn't be able to shoot with that accuracy because you know how Americans get sort of fanatical about the use of guns (laughs) And they're like, oh, the the aim wouldn't be good enough on a submachine gun. You want like a rifle for this? So yeah, but that's not the point, is it? Mm. I I love the idea of this. The execution. Uh, I thought this was one of the moments where you could see the budget of the film. Yeah. <laughs> CG was a little bit. I mean, but well, like, to be honest, I think anytime you see the train from the outside, yeah, I think it's obvious. I think yeah. the CG. landscape it looks shots. like the Polar Express. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think when you're just seeing shots from the train of the outside landscape, I think they do that beautifully. But whenever you're actually seeing the train moving on it, mm-hmm. it's like it's notable that I only really have a very fuzzy sense in my head of what the engine and the train actually look like. Like it's very vague. You never see a yeah. detailed like they they clearly haven't built a model or anything. Um, it's they've obviously just CGI'd it because there's, it, it looks like a Cylon. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, that's, actually, what, that's you, what I thought it looked like. <laughs> if you look at the the design from the comic, this is one of the things that they actually did take quite. You know, they sort of lifted it quite wholesale from the comic, in that it's sort of a an almost featureless. Mm-hmm. Like it looks more like a submarine than anything. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't look like Super Train. No. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so they get into. <laughs> they get into the next car, which is uh, like a sauna car, right? With like, is it a sauna car? It's, it's all yellow. Some kind of sauna. It's got like, and it has like little a lot of steam little, in there. Yeah, and lots of little compartments that people yeah. can hide in. Um, and extended fight sequence with the very bad man. 
Uh, he nearly he nearly kills Chris Evans, but then the Luke Pasqualano character saves him by sticking his hand in the way of the blade, and that leads to a Saving Private Ryan death for his character. <laughs> Deeply disturbing any time anyone chooses to execute that kind of death. But it is the Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> and then the guy kills Octavia Spencer as well. Yes. Um, With a gunshot. And then Chris Evans stabs him through the side and he is then dead until the movie needs him not to be again yeah. and he gets up and starts pursuing them. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, that that is a kind of uh, sort of Eastern cinema thing, I think, which is characters who appear to be dead, who in all material reality should be dead, suddenly turning out to be alive so they can come and do one more thing. Like... I don't know how much you guys watch Japanese and Korean films, but I feel like I see that happen a lot. It happens in Battle Royale, which has similar similar sort of social ideas to this. Again, I just like what whatever he comes back to do doesn't feel worth it. No, true. Or it doesn't feel like it needed to be him. Oh no, I, I agree completely. I'm just I I think there's an interesting parallel there with like a lot of other films. Hmm. It's in okay. it's a strange trope. So they keep going. The next car I kind of assumed was just a, like a really dark, like sleeping car that they've all got their their sleep compartments in. They then go through um, like a nightclub car, and I thought it was interesting that that you had in in the middle all of these, you know, like the aquarium and the orange tree um, compartment. You had all of these like these kind of like you know your middle class comforts essentially mm-hmm. and then when the closer you got to the front where the most exclusive passengers should be that wasn't these like monocle wearing aristocrats this yeah, was, was like where hedonists. your yeah your debauched hedonists were mm-hmm. so you had the nightclub car followed swiftly by basically the crack den car yeah <laughs> And that was that was the top echelon of society. Basically, was like self destructive, just pleasure seeking. Well, like. again, I wonder if that's a sort of Korean thing because, like, you know, we all know about Gangnam, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not mad. Like, it, it's it, just that's the sort of thing is that when you when you have money. You don't, like, we have this English idea of, like, oh, you have money, you have a giant mansion, and you live in the country and, you know, kill foxes for fun. But actually, in a lot of, you know, modern society, the the thing you do, you have lots of money, so you go on holiday and take tons of drugs and party all the time. Well, I mean, and this is this is a society where all of the power is held by one man. So, for me, like, a lot of the time... The, the parallel I would make with with like the English idea of wealth and power, wealth is it leads to people seeking power. And you know, look in America right now, very wealthy man. All all he was left to want more was power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a society where all of the power is held by one guy at the front, and it's unattainable. So once you get to the top what is there to seek other than pleasure mm-hmm. and that's and that's the head, hedonism you see at the front i can only assume we skip swiftly past the like sex dungeon cars <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> unfortunately you, for you, you yes you know that they existed um and then and then once you get past the the crack den 
it's basically the there is a car that has like lots of like controls, lots of techie looking stuff. Um <laughs> and that's where that's where at this point it is Curtis and uh Namgung and Yona who make it that far. Yona is basically tripping balls at this point and doesn't know what's going on. And Namgoon can't... Well, Namgoon at this point just sits down and doesn't seem to have any intention of letting Curtis get through to the engine mm-hmm. to meet to meet Wilford. Um, so instead, they sit down and they have a little chat. Which I enjoyed. This is a... I'm not going to read this whole one out, uh, because... Oh, it's grim. Um, but Curtis basically is trying to appeal to Namgoon to let to, to get him through to the engine room. And Namgoon instead wants to, we were, we were talking around this earlier, is basically like, I've been looking outside, I've been seeing that every year when we go past that this plane has, be, has been becoming more and more visible, which tells me that the ice is melting and conditions out there are getting better. What I want to do is blow a hole in this door and fuck fuck this train, fuck this entire system, destroy this society that we're a part of. And start again. And, tr- and start <laughs> Take again. Take chances and try and... out on the blank slate yeah. of, of what's left of the world. Yeah. He is anarchy. <laughs> um, is there something better out there? Um I take issue with your depiction of anarchy as a political system. There, <laughs> he's not anarchy, <laughs> but yeah, he is a he is an alternative. Yeah, um, and but Curtis still wants to get through to the engine, so he basically tries to appeal to Namgung and tells him. And Namgung, I think, kind of re- refers to him dismissively as like a tail section pig. He says, "Oh, you're you're smoking. You know what you're smoking there? It's society's last cigarette. Yeah, that's literally the last <laughs> cigarette ever. A new tail section scum are smoking it, basically." Mm-hmm. And so Curtis says, "Like, do you even know what it's like back there? Do you know the shit that we had to go through?" And explains that when they first got onto the train, there were thousands of them back in that tail section. The train didn't provide anything for them. There wasn't there wasn't the protein blocks. There was no food or water. So they just started killing each other. <laughs> and this is when he delivers the line, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. And I know that babies taste best. And you go, oh, holy shit. <laughs> this movie took another turn. Um, I mean, it was stand to reason, right, guys? Yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of expected that to happen. I was expecting more of a Soylent Green as people moment with all the, like, oh, with the protein, or whatever, with... or with the protein blocks. Yeah. But, yeah. Turns out, the cannibalism was just direct cannibalism and they were well aware of it. Enthusiastic about why, it, uh, if anything. And this is why basically he's been reluctant to take up this leadership role because he goes basically like there was a woman with a baby and this man turned up and he was going to... He killed the mother and he was going to eat the baby. But then Gilliam turned up and chopped off his arm and gave it to everyone and said, look, eat my arm. Just leave the baby alone. And Curtis basically reveals that he was that man. He was the guy that was going to eat the baby. And, the, and that, that kind baby of, was Edgar. 
who was the Jamie Bell character. It kind of explains a line earlier as well, where he says something like, how could I be a leader with two good arms? Yes. And then well, and, and you get they... to that point and you're like, oh, because like in his mind, to be a leader, you have to have sacrificed something. You can't, you know, be selfish. Well, it's also because you, you assume... I think um, earlier on, because obviously you've, you've had that whole bit where you we see that freezing off the limb is a punishment. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. so when you see John Hurt with a missing arm yeah, and a missing leg, you're up. like, yeah. oh, he stood up, you know, to them twice and and got punished twice. And it's like, no, it's worse than that. <laughs> um, because it's also as well, it's interesting because you you get that sort of that that narrative of oh, we had to resort to cannibalism. Um, is not uncommon in kind of stories or scenarios of this type, but it's mm. usually people started to die and we, <laughs> so we ate, ate the them. dead. Yeah, it's mm. not. We were actually killing women and children in order to eat them. That you know, because I think you know that that really pushes it into. I think part of what it's doing is it's pushing you into a scenario where what happens at the end of the film feels like the only just thing that can happen well it for me it's also i think the movie because of you know chris evans is the hero of the story Mm. right he's the guy that's fighting to the front who wants to upend the system Mm -hmm. but what the movie is routinely telling you is basic well what the people at the front want to want to believe is that everyone has their preordained place you either deserve to be at the front, or you, or you, but you belong at the front, or you belong in the middle, or you belong in the tail. You belong in this section of society, and it's preordained. You, you are born into it. And I think what the movie is kind of saying at this point is, people just end up where they end up. Like it's not, it's not preordained. It's just kind of people end up in different places, and everyone's awful we you shouldn't just be rooting for the poor people because they're poor and they want to get out of their Mm. situation they are just as awful like it's all about self-preservation it's all about how do i survive and if that is at the expense of someone else and if that is you know babies taste best so we try to eat the babies that's that's like that goes beyond survival that goes to this is something that's nicer, right? This they are, is they, are, they are essentially doing the same thing that the people at the front are doing, which is yes. we are oppressing on the slash killing, preying on uh, other people in order to make our lives better. And if it had been different people that were at the front, if if you just switch the people's situations, you know, it you put those same people into the better. flip situations. No, well, every no, but if you just, it's just, it's just random. You're mm. you're you're in the situation you're in. And people all kind of like the reason that society conforms to this structure is because people are selfish and because people are ultimately, normally, you know, largely go towards how do I make my situation better? I mean, that, and, that and does sort of that make mean, it if, sound a bit more nihilistic than it is, I think. I think the movie's really fucking nihilistic. Oh, it's nihilistic yeah. to a point, but like <laughs> everything that 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 Curtis does isn't for himself. Like, there's a huge selfless dimension to it. I don't know. That I, I mean, you. I it, it what, feels what it driven shows by you guilt is to that me. He can, you know, he is capable of great evil as much as great good, right? And what what keeps him moving yes. forward in this, you know, the latter half of his life 
you know, the post-baby eating part, is that he has this ideal to strive for, which is that he wants to, to free everyone and bring about a sort of, you know, equality across the train. And that's what he's fighting ah. for. Like, there's no point where he's like, oh, we'll kill all those rich fuckers. Like, what he says is, when we get to the top, we're going to be a different sort of leader. And he, he sincerely he believes that, that. Yeah, he does, yeah. Does he he say says that? with his friend, doesn't he? Like, oh, when we get to the top, we're not going to be like them. I, don't, I think he I think he does, but in, like, in other breaths, he says, like, when we get to the front, we'll control everything, we'll have all the power. And you see that when... So, let's get to the, let's get to the next bit. He eventually Wilford just opens the door and lets him in and he goes in and Wilford explains the entire construct of the train explains that he he let him get this far he explained I think shows him that he is murdering 74% of the people in the tail section as a means yeah. of population which he is control. actually literally doing as well yes like he doesn't say it's I'm gonna th- do this he says this is happening and here it here is me doing it and then says to Curtis, like, I, I, I'm going to offer you a trade. What if we change places? Or, but not, not so much. Originally, he says, would you trade places with me? But then he says, look, I'm not going to be here forever. I need a successor. I'm offering it to you right now. And I think in that moment, you see Chris Evans basically resigning himself to the fact of, well, rather me than someone else uh see i didn't i didn't get rather me than someone else from it i got kind of like i got him thinking actually i've been played from the start like gilliam wasn't who i thought he was yeah everything i've done has been within the framework of things that are allowed to do i i don't actually have a choice is how i read it not not that he was in any way enthusiastic about it just that he felt like he had no other option but again, that and that felt to me like I read that as it all. It almost doesn't matter how good the intentions are when people get to power. Does anything ever really change? Yeah. <laughs> um, but because I think because um, Bong Joon Ho has for for me a more nihilistic take in mind. Um, that doesn't get to fully play out because. Chris Evans discovers the two kids that were taken earlier in the movie, like trapped under the floorboards. And essentially there are parts of the engine that are no longer functional. Uh, no, okay. And I, I disagree with the interpretation that I think is the popular one here, which is that people are going like, Oh, the, the part, the engine can't run out, but parts can. And people seem to read that as, uh, these children are replacing like worn out cogs. I think it yeah. o- it always ran on human labor. And it was always being powered by kids. And when he says parts wear out, what he means is children die. And I replace them. Right, okay. I uh, yeah, that 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 makes complete yeah. sense. And I think if you like it's a completely valid interpretation to say that that's what's happening and that's the implication certainly. But I think mm. on a slightly deeper reading, especially because as well the school kids are do that salute when they're singing and it mimics the hand movements that the kid is doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a sort of deeper thematic idea there that, that like the labor of children is all that's keeping this train going. And actually it's not a perpetual motion machine. It's running off people. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, I don't see any reason to disagree with that, 
but Chris Evans finds the kids, right? Basically, he sees that this is what's happening to the kids, and that's the kind of the thing that's the breaking point for him. Uh, we can talk about the the very ending of the film in a second, but Seb, <laughs> um, you it, it seems like you really appreciated the the Ed Harris sequence. <laughs> so yeah, so Ed Harris, as I said before, uh, reprising his role of Christoph from the Truman Show. Because he is basically giving almost exactly the same performance that he gives in The Truman Show, playing a very, very similar character, to the extent that I could believe that after The Truman Show experiment ended, Christoph became obsessed with trains, and this was his next big enterprise. Um, See, I I didn't know it was the same guy, so I totally didn't go there. I definitely did go to (laughs) The Matrix and The the Architect in The Matrix. The Architect in The Matrix, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went to The Matrix, and also Ed Harris, the other link to make is... Uh, Westworld that he's started more recently <laughs> yeah. and again you know just this idea of walking into a room and seeing all of the all of the machinations behind what you thought was the world you were living in and finding out that it was all kind of a lie it's not the world that the world that Chris Evans is living in is not a lie but what he discovers is basically I've been played I've I've been used up to this point um and yeah and, and so yeah the 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 question is how do you what said what do you read of the offer that is made to to the Curtis character what do you mean by what do I read to it as in what is, is it sincere or yeah is it is it sincere and is is he gonna take it up is does does he want do do you think that at that point chris Evans is kind of is he gonna take it up because he's resigned himself to the fact that I might as well lead rather than someone else. Or is he thinking, well, maybe I can do a better job. Like it just, it just feels like he's completely given up at this point. Yeah. For I me, mean, for me, I always read it as I, him thinking, I just don't have a choice at this point, which then he realizes he does. But it is that, it, I think it slightly comes again to that question of, you know, what happens to a revolutionary if their revolution succeeds because it doesn't actually happen very often and when it does <laughs> it tends uh, to be bad <laughs> yeah um so yeah it's that thing of, his... well actually if, if you're the person who's managed to get yourself into the position to be the leader after it all shakes out mm. you're probably not necessarily going to be any better than what you're replacing yeah and and he kind of realizes that. And whilst whilst he gets himself into that position, because we see, because literally it is shown to him, seventy four percent of his friends in the tail section are being murdered on the spot mm. right there and then. His revolution hasn't succeeded. His revolution has failed. Everything that Wilford wanted to happen happened. He just made it further down the train and i think wilford's like yeah there were more casualties at the front than we were expecting but we can handle that yeah Um, (laughs) all he cares about is that enough people have killed for the train to be sustainable i know he's like look fair play i'm impressed you you actually might be a worthy successor what do you think (laughs) and yeah and 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 it comes back it's like it's the flip of the earlier moment isn't it so in the earlier moment Chris Evans is so obsessed by the cause that he makes the individual sacrifice, which is to let Jamie Bell die. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, he sees these kids that are being used as cogs in the machine 
and that's his breaking point and he says and he basically goes no that's that's too much and i wonder that's because whether that's because at this point he realizes that his cause is kind of it's null and void it's gone it's done like he can either his choice is to either give up and go home <laughs> or or to, or, yeah. to or, or to or to take ed harris up on his offer and become like the next wilford like so his and and when he sees that that is what you know, to be that guy, this is what you need to embrace. Yeah, I this mean, that's, horrific, that's the, dehumanizing. That's the thing that his decision twists around, isn't it? Is like, regardless, if you want to be at the top, this is what you have to live with. And he says, "Well, yeah. fucking burn it all in," because I'm not doing that. And so the ending of the movie is essentially you've got you've got um, you've got Nam Goong outside who is. Not quite dead, and has been fighting with the that boring, <laughs> the boring bad guy, guy again. Yeah, um, and he's and he's previously been shot, uh, but he. I can't remember whether it's him or Yona manages to actually light the light the fuse on the on all the chrono that they've like stuck together. And as you remember from earlier in the podcast, it's highly flammable. <laughs> yeah, it's stuck basically it on the a door. plastic explosive. Yeah, <laughs> blow. They blow the door open. Um, and Curtis and Namgoon kind of protect Yona and the little kid. Is it Timmy? Is that his name? Yeah. One of the little kids, basically, from who was taken right at the start of the film yeah. and has been part Because the, the other little kid emerges and goes and sits in a machine, and I've no idea what it actually does or why he's doing it. I think it's just to show that the, at this point they're just doing it willingly, yeah. like it, on on autopilot, that they are part of the machine. It just now. seems like such a big deal is made out of this big device part coming out of the engine and him going and sitting in it. I'm like, I've no idea what's meant to be happening there. No. <laughs> so yeah, the 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 door explodes, and um, I think it, then the implication is that Curtis and Namgoong have died protecting the other two in the explosion and then the explosion triggers an avalanche which destroys the train and everyone on it basically <laughs> that's that's certainly the implication right that everyone's dead yeah, apart from apart from y- the two. yona and, and and the little boy <laughs> yeah apart from who, a 17 year old girl and a what five-year-old child who will probably be dead in about 30 minutes yeah, so they, they leave the wreckage and they walk out into the outside world, which is still real fucking cold. Um, and there is a polar bear there, which the Wikipedia says, proof that life exists outside the train, or as I read, the thing that will eat them. I saw it a lot more optimistic than that, because yeah. my, my, like, it's weird, because the film tells you at the start, life is extinct outside the train. But then later it shows you a polar bear, which implies an entire food chain, right? Because that's an apex predator. Yeah. To support there ha- one there polar bear, there has to be a lot of eat. life yeah, yeah, further down. So in a way, it's a little bit of a cheat because the sort of omniscient narrative captions have told you life is extinct. Mm. But actually so you believe not. that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it actually raises the question of whether... All humans well, this, outside yeah, of okay, the train so this are is dead the thing. or not? I sort of think those two aren't going to die because if if polar bears can survive, humans can survive 
is is how I read that scene. And so probably they're going to find out that there are more people alive who will take them in. That That's my optimistic reading of it. I see, it's, but, but I see from everything that the film has told me up to that point, though, I, it, it almost doesn't matter. Because <laughs> yeah, because if you get taken they, in by humans, bad luck, because humans are awful. <laughs> yeah, because because humans will naturally find those systems of... Control, you know, yeah. yeah, those systems of control and, and you know, oppre- yeah, of, of power and hierarchy and oppressing the people at the bottom of that pyramid. It's a dark movie, you guys. Yeah, it's a bit Walking Dead, isn't it? <laughs> but better. <laughs> better and slightly more cheerful. Definitely better. <laughs> so, yeah, we all, we, we really liked this movie. It's like, like, like I said at the start, I have a reservation on a kind of like a, 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 on a kind of big, wide level, overarching film level. But scene to scene and the stuff that this movie does from a production design point of view, the performances... I mean, Chris Evans in this movie is out of this world good. And it's such a... It's one of those ones that is better because of context. Uh, a bit like, I think, his and other people's roles in Scott Pilgrim. Um, but the context of who he is and who and the type of character that he's known for playing. Like, this is a very different film if you don't go into it inherently trusting Chris Evans's face. That is very true. Because <laughs> you assume he's a hero because, you know, he's Captain America. Yeah. And it turns out Captain America has been jumping on babies. <laughs> and this wasn't even written by Mark Miller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... So real good movie, you guys. That's what we're saying. Real good movie. It is. I mean, yes. I, I, it's not even that I can necessarily massively dispute some of the things that you've raised with it as issues, but just you know, for a film of this type to be to be doing what it does is 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 remarkable. I think for it to be for the circumstances of as well, you know, it is it's it's a South Korean film taking on. English language films at their own game and, you know, doing, you know, hiring all of these actors who are, who are known for doing this stuff in, in Britain and Hollywood and doing it better in a lot of ways. But really it is just, it's just got so much style and it just really kind of lures you in. And I was saying, you know, even if, you know, some of the stuff from an effects point of view aren't necessarily a hundred percent, so much of it is just so visually stylish and impressive that, it, it's one of those where it doesn't really matter. You know, as someone who loves trains and who loves model shots in films, I would have absolutely loved if they <laughs> built train. a bloody gorgeous model and given us loads of shots of it. But it doesn't really matter that they haven't. Um, I'd, I'll, I'll, I'll take Tilda Swinton's Yorkshire um, <laughs> dictator politician instead. The thing that I came away from this thinking is like, I was expecting an action movie, but I got a, like a piece of art as well. It ended, and like as much as I love Marvel films, you cannot really describe them as art in any sort yeah. of authorial way. Like they are entertainment and craft, certainly, but I don't feel like they're very artistic. Hmm. I would describe any movie as art, personally, whether it's a good <laughs> piece of art or a bad piece. Of oh art. yeah, yeah. It, yeah, and I don't want to get into discussion about like what's high art and what's low art 
but it feels like this there's more going on in this than I think in any other film that we've watched with the possible exception James, of Ghost you, World can you please stop trying to put our culture into structures <laughs> <laughs> it's weird actually like snowpiercer of all like of all the films that we've that we've watched snowpiercer is most like the one i would watch if it wasn't based on a comic <laughs> <laughs> i say it, what, Again, what it really did me make me want to do <laughs> i i didn't do this before the podcast because i didn't want to be colored by um other people's analysis and reviews but this is the kind of film that i want to dig out podcast from six years ago mm-hmm. and listen to what critics were saying about it i want to read deep dive essays on the metaphors and on the you know and all the allegories and the symbolism and what what the, i, I want to read interviews with the director um and the film definitely sat with me you know like like i say it, it, it suffers from the same problem that Okja did for me on a on a wider like metaphorical scale but thematic scale but i want to dig into this in a way that i didn't with okja mm-hmm. and maybe that's because i agree that society's fucked but i actually quite <laughs> like eating meat <laughs> but, um, <laughs> i have something to but do with do you, that do you like know. eating mulched up cockroaches <laughs> do you like eating babies i'll tell you this for free i would have eaten okja <laughs> I would have as well. That's, he looks he he looks tasty as That's hell. the problem with Okja, right? Is that I think uh, <laughs> Okja looks too well, tasty. Well, you just you come away from that. If you are someone who eats meat, and I am enthusiastically someone who eats uh, meat, I would happily yeah. eat people if it was you know <laughs> if it was necessary. I would not have a huge and moral this, quandary about that. But and this is this is why Bong Joon Ho is exactly right. We know that eating meat is wrong, but we can't stop doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like at the end of okay. Okja, I was not convinced in any way. I was like, well, yeah, but people got to eat, right? Yeah. Do you have? Do you, do you guys have any comic book recommendations based off of Snowpiercer, or should we move on to the? You pitch? know, it's extremely difficult to find the comic of Snowpiercer. It's not available digitally, legally or illegally. <laughs> Um, Seb, do you have something? Which is I mean, no, I, I was actually kind of just going to flip it, really, which is to say that off the back of this, I'm I'm absolutely going to go and watch uh, Okja, um, because you know I I am now fascinated to watch another film from this director. The fact that it's another film that's got Tilda Swinton in, and it's got Paul Dano and Jake Gyllenhaal uh, and Shirley Henderson among its cast, uh, I will definitely be uh, going and watching that. From what you guys have said about it. <laughs> It's nuts. It is. It is nuts. Oh, it's co-written by John Ronson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, there's some there's some stuff in there which is so clearly John Ronson. Which, to be fair, I have really enjoyed another film that John Ronson uh, wrote, co-wrote, which was Frank. So I love Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. Um, and what I want to know, guys, is now that he's done with Captain America. Pitch me Chris Evans's next comic book movie role. Ooh. And James, I'll come to you first. Oh, God. Uh, next comic book movie role. Oof. Uh, the Tick. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That is quite good. <laughs> you can it's see it. Chris Evans. He does comedy. Chris Evans he is does the, the tick. Billy action guy. Works perfectly. That would basically be him. 
you know when Loki is Captain America in Thor The Dark World? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be Chris Evans as the yeah, tick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's my pitch. <laughs> Wonderful. That's pretty good. Seb, can you beat it? Oh, I mean, Chris I... Evans' next comic book movie role. I mean, I was going to say Superman, but that just feels like a... <laughs> uh... <laughs> Uh, a fairly lame answer now. Um, John Constantine. If any, if anyone can actually pull off being an American, John Constantine. If anyone's no. going to be John Constantine, it should be <laughs> Tilda Swinton. It's a good point. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I would say Superman. I, um, you know, would I would still like to see a, a Chris Evans Superman. I will say this, Seb. I. From the first 10 seconds of James's answer, I thought that there was no way that you weren't going to win the pitch this week. And that we are so much more likely to get a Superman movie than we are a Tick movie. But he he opened his mouth. I don't think he realised what he said when he was saying it. But the Tick is too good an answer. <laughs> it is. I can't. Chris, Chris, Chris Evans would be fantastic as the Tick. So, um, James, you again win this new format yes. of the pitch. Apparently, <laughs> really Seth, playing to my strengths you, of not thinking about anything beforehand. Yeah, if only we'd been doing this from the very start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so that is it for this week's podcast. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe to be able to hear this podcast ad free. Um, Seb, I believe we have got Patreon people to thank. We have, but you can ask James because James has got the list. Ah, <laughs> oh, James, you thank me. Yeah, I'd like Seb, to. Seb has no thanks to give you away. Yeah, I would like to personally thank, uh, on behalf of me and not you guys, Stephen Fletcher, Stuart Wynn, James Griffin, Paul, and Brendan Roberts. You can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicuniverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cine underscore verse, or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.